0: All right, three, two, one. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, I'm here with uh, Joe Logan. He's a retired Major General. Used to work for the Department of Defense for yep. Hawaii. Right, it was a Hawaii's DLP. Yeah,
1: the director of the State Department of Defense.
0: Oh, okay. Because you, uh, your resume is quite uh, impressive and long, so it's kind of a- oh.
1: I appreciate
0: that. <laughs> uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to come and be a guest. I was actually surprised. Um, because I never really care or think much about LinkedIn. I mean, I don't know if anyone has ever connected on LinkedIn.
1: Well, quite a few times. I, I didn't. I had no expectation about LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. But when I joined and I signed up, it was actually, I've got uh, more connections and made uh, new friends through LinkedIn than I would have never had before. Really? So,
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, you had congratulated me on a work anniversary. And I was like, you know what? Uh, let me just uh, shoot my shot and see <laughs> if you'd be interested in just coming and sharing uh, his story. Because I've, I've always known about you, right? Um, ever since I worked at the Capitol, and of course TV and everything. So I thought it would be interesting uh, to hear your story. Um, so why don't you just go ahead? and Just you can just kind of give a, a a little brief breakdown where you're from, um, what got you to where you are today. Does it? And then we'll kind of get into everything in, the, in a minute.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I'm. Um I was not born in Hawaii, but I was raised here. I'm originally born in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, my mom uh, married an active duty uh, army officer. And so every three or four years, we traveled around the United States mostly. Uh, And then after my dad's second tour in Vietnam, uh, he came back to the Pentagon. And we were living in Virginia at the time and got assigned out to Hawaii, to Fort Shafter. Uh, And interesting that uh, my dad's... uh, uh, an army officer, you know, ranger, boots on the ground, combat guy, but he was an information technology specialist. He had, he had a master's degree in computer science, um, and that's where he met my mom in Nebraska. And so um, here you have, a, you, it's a dichotomy of experiences. You're a combat person uh, on certain times of your career. And then you're in the office running computers is another part of your career, which I thought was rather interesting for my dad. Yeah. But that's how we moved here in 1972, came to Hawaii, uh, went to public school, um, or seventh finished up seventh grade at Washington Intermediate. Then we moved to the Windward side in Kaneohe. I went to King Intermediate for eighth and ninth grade, saw an ad in the paper about a St. Louis high school. I had no concept of what it was. I applied, got... Uh, Took the test uh, and got accepted, and my parents, back then it was much more reasonable, uh, I guess, but like anything else, you know, in 1975, what my dad was making and what the school cost was significant, uh-huh. but um, he was able to afford that with mom going to work, and so uh, they paid for my private school uh, at St. Louis for graduated in 1977, and that's pretty much the basics of my start here. Uh, and then I actually started working when I was 15, uh, making corn tortillas in the back of an old Mexican shutdown. The restaurant shut down, but it was a Mexican restaurant. Um, yeah, so uh, never ask your mom to find you a job. Cause yeah, there you That's go. dangerous. Um, yeah, and so then I joined the Army in 1979, my first year out of UH, UH, studying architecture and engineering. So that summer I went to basic training, came home for a year. Um, finished up my second year at University of Hawaii, went back to AIT mm-hmm. at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, to be a draftsman for an engineering uh, battalion in the U.S. Army Reserve here in Hawaii, um, and so that was my start in the military. <clears throat> and then uh, I had different jobs in between, so I had to—I basically found new jobs every time I came home. Um, and then uh, from there, I just kind of. That was the start of my military career, oh, nice. after 41 years of service is where I am today, so.
0: Oh, yeah, 41, that's, yeah. A, that's impressive. Uh, especially compared to my eight. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I guess your first, so what was your, your first major job, or I guess permanent gig was with HPD?
1: Yeah, so my first uh, career position, I guess, or yeah, what, what, what started was... a career in law enforcement, Professionalized. I was a cook in restaurants, worked for a hardware store, but those aren't technically professions. I mean, you can be a professional cook mm. uh, and a chef and those kinds of things, but that wasn't my, my dream, nor was being a policeman really. Um, one day my brother came home. I was working for an engineering company and I was drafting for them uh, in Fort Street Mall. And so my brother brought up my older brother went to a police academy, graduated, was also in the Hawaii National Guard at the time. And uh, he brought the application said, you need to try this. Uh, come come, join the police department. And so I, I thought about it for a couple of weeks and said, all right, I filled out the application. I left it on my dresser, went to work Then that, that night, came back uh, late at night uh, from the restaurant that I was working in, and my dog had chewed up my de- my application, and it was due the next day. And so <laughs> I had to run down to... to uh, the city and county um, human resources office, refill out everything all over again.
2: Oh, wow. And then
1: submitted it by four o'clock that afternoon. And And so I got it in in time, took the test, um, and I passed the test. They called me up for the, uh, you had to do a physical exam, you had to take a, uh, uh, an interview and do a psychological test. Uh, so I did all of those things, passed everything. Um, and then in June of 1972, or 1982 is when I started. Uh, I got the June 17th, uh, was a Thursday evening, called us all into this meeting. There was 55 of us, I think, in the class. Uh, and we all sat in the old police station, which was the old Sears building in, uh, on South Bear Tennis Street uh, mm-hmm. and Young Street. And uh, from that, we, we started our police career. And uh, we went through nine months of recruit school, um, and enjoyable time. It was uh, it fun. They paid me twice as much money as I was making for the engineering company to go <laughs> oh, to wow. recruit school. And the funny thing was, I was I, by that time, I had switched to the Army National Guard. Mm. And so when I made that switch in 1980, here I am taking the recruit school was in the upstairs classroom of the brigade headquarters on 22nd Avenue in Diamondhead. And so I'm <laughs> I'm drilling on weekends in the same place on Monday through Friday <laughs> oh,
2: he's going to recruit school. Yes. Yeah,
1: so, um, and later on, when I, I left the police department to take a full time job in 2000, is the building we used to have the formations in when the chief would come down and do the inspection for the recruit class is the very building I'm now in control of and in charge of oh, wow. an organization. So it's kind of like full circle. Yeah, and, interesting. Uh, a lot of uh, intro. Um, Interesting uh, crossovers that happen as as these things do, but so I did twenty years in the Honolulu Police Department. Uh, resigned in two thousand two to become full time in the Hawaii National Guard.
0: And what was the role then that you were taking on for the National Guard?
1: I was uh, I was a senior major, and I took on the uh, counter drug program, which uh, was something that started in the early nineties. Um, each state and, and territory had a counter drug program where they provided, uh, because Title X posi comitatus applies, right? So active duty military cannot do law enforcement, but National Guard can because they're under Title 32. So it's a different law under the United States Code. So because of that different law, posi comitatus doesn't apply to us. Therefore, we can do law enforcement work.
0: I didn't know that. Um,
1: and, and we don't try to be law, we're not policemen. But we support law enforcement agencies and we can be intel analysts. You can do uh, observation and surveillance. Um, you can uh, recon and do other things in support of the police department to help them gather evidence. Uh, but we try not to, we don't make arrests. We don't, um, and we don't, we don't gather evidence. So we, we want to stay out of the chain of custody of evidence and that kind of thing. Not that we don't, we, we wouldn't be able to. That support it, but it's Mm -hmm. just not something you want guardsmen to do. You still want to keep that military construct, uh, like the Title Ten, intact.
0: That's interesting because I was, I was reserve and active duty military police, but I didn't. Right. I guess reserve reserve doesn't fall under the same as the National Guard, so
1: right. You're you're still Title Ten in the in the Army Reserve. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't know a lot of things when I joined as a young (laughs) uh, uh, young private. Uh, and one of the things that basic training is because we were from Hawaii there was five of us in the same basic training unit in uh, Fort Leonardwood Missouri that's where I went yeah it's hot in the summer yeah. I couldn't wait to cut my hair because I had super long hair back then uh, from uh, spending a lot of times at Sandy Beach and uh, getting nice and tan and hair. Yeah. but I needed to cut and then my ears got sunburned and it was pretty funny by the time I got out of basic training but um so one of the one of the brand new uh, drill sergeants uh, showed up late. Um, he was at home, and then he called the five Hawaii guys into his office as soon as he got there. It's like, "You five, get in my office." And we all at parade rest and he just called us pineapples after that that's all he used. pineapples you guys are pineapples i don't want you any trouble out of you i know what hawaii guys you come here you guys i don't know what you do but you get into trouble and i just can you not do that and oh wow we're just looking at each other and i only knew one of the five guys from hawaii the other three i didn't even uh, i got to know them by the time we left but it was just like why are you picking on us? Yeah. So I don't know what the white people did in basic training. But <laughs> we didn't cause any trouble. That's
0: interesting. well uh, uh, you got to cause a little trouble in basic, I think. <laughs> but uh, what what, what what months were you in Fort Leonard Wood then?
1: I was there from uh, late June till um, end of August. Oh yeah, it's almost... I think yeah, early June, yeah, early July to late August. Yeah, as soon as I came home, I jumped right back into school. And then so AIT for me, a lot of people go straight into AIT, right, mm-hmm. from basic training. So I took a year off, uh, went back to school, drilled. I drilled with the, the 411th Engineer Battalion at Fort DeRussi. um, really not knowing what I was doing as a young private who does. And then I came back, went to AIT drafting school, right? So we had the surveyors downstairs, the draftsmen were the upper barracks, um, and then the females were on the top. Uh, and they were in our classes. So it was kind of a mix of, of male and female classes. And we were at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Uh, and I had been there as a young kid when my dad was stationed in, in yeah, right. the Pentagon. Um, and so now I'm back as a private, uh, which is <laughs> interesting, or at least a PFC, I think, or E2. Um, and my the captain, who's the company commander for the training unit that we were, selected me to be the, the, the class leader. So now I'm a young private. I I don't know anybody from Adam. There's all these people from all over the United States thrown together. There's probably about 25 30 of us. And I'm now the class leader and I'm like, "Oh,
0: okay." <laughs> that's the yeah, that's the first uh yeah, for like most people, basic training or any any military initial training is is the first time that a lot of people meet anyone from right. any other even culture. Absolutely. I mean, I've never known anyone who who was from like Mexico, Puerto Rico. And I love those guys. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's like it's a little melting pot. And then you learn how to get along with everybody. Right. Like you just learn how to deal with everyone's personalities and, and different ways of doing things.
1: Right. Because you're all there for the same reason. You're there right. to get trained. You're there to serve your country. You're there for all the right reasons. And so it's easy to to mingle with those kinds of people and uh, and basically get to know each other no yeah. one's there for their ego or anything else
0: yeah that's true yeah. like everyone's there for a, a some sort of reason that but, is, is at least bettering themselves uh, yeah interesting uh, um, so you came back from from Leonard Wood. so wait as a draftsman I feel like wouldn't that be like a, wouldn't you need like a you it was like an enlisted like a private
1: yeah i so I was enlisted back then, so I joined as a mm. as a private um,
0: when i sorry but when I think of draftsmen, I'm thinking of people who are like designing the
1: well draftsmen draw the pictures that the engineers and architects put together, so I make the plans that oh. they design the concept, so if they designed a building um and and they' design what the end result would look like, and then then the draftsman would take that and go, okay with the engineers sit down and go okay each section looks like this so floor 1 floor 2 basement what does the wall look like how's the foundation laid what's the ground underneath where is the rebar sitting and so we draw those all into pictures so when the construction people go they're the ones that take the plans yeah and may actually make the building
0: that's impressive i just feel like uh, that would be like some some like you would need more of an advanced degree to do something like
2: that
1: well you're not so, So later in life, when Mm. I became a combat engineer commander, then I had to, um, that's when all your algebra, math, and and science comes to play, where you've got to understand steel strength, concrete pressure, pounds per square inch, um, dynamite, what's it going to do, how big the blast is going to be. And so those are when the sciences all come into play. Um, But for the enlisted side, more so it's just execution of... uh, a small amount of information. You didn't need to be a college degree person oh, to be a draftsman. I
0: see.
2: Oh.
1: And today it's all computer generated. So you type it on the computer, click a couple things on a mouse, and yeah. it pops up. And So it's, it's a lot. I won't say simpler. It's a little more advanced technology.
0: Yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. And then you eventually became an officer. Yes. What led to that?
1: <laughs> so one day I was in the... Um, in the arms room. So, as a young uh, enlisted person in a unit, um, I did all the preventative maintenance checks for all the vehicles that were assigned to our section, uh, which was three. And then I was a jeep, a truck, and a, a larger truck. And then I I did all the weapons. So I took care of the heavy weapon sections. So nice. I made sure all the M60 machine guns, the uh, the other weapons that were assigned to us were clean, ready to go. <laughs> and I walked into the arms room to, to check out the M60 to make sure it was clean, because we had fired it uh, a couple drills ago, and we had cleaned it, but I wanted to clean it one more time just to make sure it's always there, and you gotta grease it and oil it and stuff. And so uh, I walked by this room, and these two officers were working on a 60 cal, and they forgot that the, the, it was cocked. <laughs> and when you release the back sleeve Um, and take off the butt plate and lift up the stopper that spring comes flying out and it just so happened that I was slightly delayed and that it went flying right in front of me into the wall and put a big dent in the concrete wall and I was like okay (laughs) so and my dad was a lieutenant colonel in the army retired by then and I, I was like all right if they could do that and I'm a class, I came back as a class leader and I'm going to college. I'm just as smart as they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I can be an officer too. <laughs> and, and that's, it's oversimplify it, but that's right. kind of, I, I never felt that I was less than they were. Mm-hmm. I always felt that I, I, I can do that job too. I'm just as smart as they are. Yeah. Even though they were officers and I was enlisted. And nothing against enlisted. I mean, we need enlisted people in the organization yeah. and we need officers and we'd like to get officers. Well, so there's two kinds. There's there's officers that come out of college, <clears throat> either ROTC and or uh, West Point or schools. And sometimes you don't get the full, uh, I would say, feeling or what it's like to be in the military unless you've been on the bottom. Yeah. And so that makes you a really good leader. Not that anybody come out of West Point doesn't, because they're, in West Point those four years you're a plebe. You you go through experiences that the rest of us don't. Mm-hmm. But and so you're treated in a manner that makes you understand what it's like to be at the bottom. And so those of us that were enlisted have a great feeling on what it's like to be at the bottom because that's where we start. But I, like any organization, you know, bought into the you know if you're going to work at a company like a McDonald's or uh, a, a large insurance company or business downtown, you start in the mail room or yeah. in the fry room and you work your way up. And so I w- always bought into that mantra. And so I thought that same thing in, in the enlisted part. I just jumped a few ranks, and, and but when I was in E4, I went to OCS, became a second lieutenant, and that's what started my officer career.
0: Yeah, and, the, and the, those were always the best, or I felt, the best officers were the ones who went like green to gold yeah. or through the OCS, yeah. because they kind of understand the plight of the uh, the private right. and, and the, what that job actually entails. Yeah. It's kind of like if you have a like a sergeant or a squad leader who's never deployed, which was very rough for a lot of yeah. people. When I was getting out, it was 2000, 2009 off active duty, we had people who had never deployed that were sergeants. Right. But there were E fours below them that had deployed and things like this. That's that's got to be hard because you don't have that experience. You only have like what the book, book says, right? And uh, you know that's why lieutenants get ragged on, right? Because <laughs> you got, it's just they only know what that book says. Right. They don't understand yeah. the abstract part of it, yeah. And then okay, so you become a second lieutenant, and then where does that take you?
1: So I started as a rifle platoon leader on uh, the island of Kauai which is a Bravo Company, 1st Battalion 299 Infantry, uh, when it existed here in the state of Hawaii, part of the 29th Brigade of the Hawaii Army National Guard. And so that was the start of my career. And the one thing they taught me as an officer is you learn from your NCO, your first sergeant, Mm -hmm. your platoon sergeant, rather. That's the person that's going to teach you how to do your job. And so, don't run in there and try to be <laughs> Mr. Macho. I know everything. <laughs> um, ego kind of guy. You, salute me. You learn from your NCOs, your squad leaders, and your platoon sergeant are the ones going to teach you. And sure enough, it was absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So I spent, um, I think, s- almost six months on on Kauai as a platoon leader, and then I went off to basic uh, officer basic course infantry at Fort Benning, and so that that took me away for um, three months. Um, and so when I came back from uh, my basic course as an infantry officer, um, then they moved me to Maui, to Charlie Company on Maui. So then I became a platoon leader on Maui. And then I went from platoon leader to uh, rifle platoon leader to mortar platoon. And then I had to go back to Fort Benning for another class for the mortar infantry officer mortar platoon course. And so those are the, all the training things you have to go to, right? And then I learned how to be a, an indirect fire person for <laughs> 60s, 81s, and four-deuce mortars that were in the inventory of the U.S. Army back then. And then what that caused me to do, which I didn't understand at the time, but now I do, is I now ran all the ranges on Oahu every time a unit came from Neighbor Island to shoot indirect fire because I was an indirect fire trained person mm-hmm. and so I could open up and close the range and be their range safety officer for all of them while they did what they needed to do is
0: that kind of like would you get like tdy and because maybe well I was
1: here on Oahu so I lived here
0: but yeah. you weren't was your spot like full-time or it would just be no no, no, no it was a part-time weekend.
1: yeah it was a drill weekend oh, so one weekend a month yeah so when I started when I joined the army reserve and even switched over to the national guard it was one week a man, one weekend a month two weeks every summer that's what they told us. <laughs> and once I became an officer, that drastically changed. Yeah. Uh, more to uh, still one week in a month training, but then we're going to add in some exercises in between. So it'll be, you know, besides your two-week annual training, you might do uh, three weeks in Korea. You might do two weeks in Fort Lewis, Washington, doing a training exercise. I was like, oh, okay. And thank God I work for the police department because – Within the the laws written and and the human resources office um, rules that I could take leave without pay or I could take leave if I had, mm-hmm. and as long as I had an order that said you're ordered to active duty by the governor to go to this training, they couldn't say no. And, but you don't want to be yeah you know mean about it either. I didn't I didn't disappear for years at a time. I did later on in life, but not early on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I would a young lieutenant. You're doing you know three, four weeks, and it's difficult to have, uh, not impossible, but it's difficult with your family trying to do the one weekend a month, because you're missing things that the kids would have on the weekends, um, and then you're gone two, three weeks at a time, maybe two or three times a year, and so you're going to miss oh, an wow. event, because you don't get to choose when those three weeks are, yeah. someone's choose them for you, yeah. and that may may happen to be, you know, a significant birthday, or somebody's graduating, or something's going on, and you know you, you're getting pulled between two different places
0: that's kind of one of the reasons why when i was originally <coughs> sorry i was originally uh reserves they're like three years and then i said oh, you know what one i wanted to get out of pittsburgh because i was working construction and i was just it wasn't what i wanted to do right it wasn't my passion and then just to always having to schedule kind of my life around the military so i said okay you know what? i just go active duty and i just <laughs> i just get it out the way right and then uh yeah, I went active duty, and then uh, back then finished out my last year in the reserves, which was awesome because my squad leader from active duty had gone to OCS, right. actually, and then by the time that I joined the reserves here, he was in charge of the only military police platoon for the reserves. Right. <laughs> so he was in charge of it. <laughs> so. It was awesome, yep. it, yeah. And I just did a year there, and then um, closed out my eight years, so they can't call me back. Hopefully.
1: <laughs> oh, you're still on a list somewhere. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Aren't we all?
0: And then, uh, yeah. so it, you became the counter drug coordinator for the Hawaii National Guard.
1: Right. That was full time AGR. So I, I be basically left the de- police department in 2000. I actually resigned in 2002. Um, and based on rules and laws, mm-hmm. you could stay out five years from the police department back then on, on as long as you're on an active duty order. Uh, and then you either come back or you got to resign. Um, and so I was coming up on my five years. I had to make a decision. Uh, I, I asked the leadership and the guard, can I stay long enough to retire? Am I, am I, are you going to keep me around long enough? Or am I doing a good job or am I not? Basically was the question. And they said, no, we, we want you to stay with us, if you will, and, and we'll, we'll get you to retirement. I said, okay. Well, that's awesome.
0: Although that's still always a scary uh, predicament.
1: It is. It is.
0: Because if the state needs to save some money, right, right, they start cutting people, yeah?
1: Yeah. So prior to that, they, um, there was a GS-10 job that opened as an operations officer for um, another unit in the Guard. Ooh. And they wanted me to do that. And I said, yeah, but I only have eight years in the state or the city and if I leave at eight years, I'm not vested. I need 10 years to get vested mm-hmm. so that at age 55, I could collect a retirement. Right? Yeah. So there's always a money component around to something, although that's not the main driver of of decisions, but it's 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 got a big deal to it. Oh, yeah. And so I I, I told him, well, I can't take that job now. If you could put me on active duty or ADOS or ADSW, what they call it, active duty special work for two years, then I, absolutely, because I could earn those two years um on leave from the department and they said no and so i said okay Uh, so i i you know i i kept applying for other agr positions and this one finally landed in my lap
0: that's awesome i when i was when i found out about agr you know it was a little it was too late but i was like man that's like the the hidden gem of of the reserves and guard i was like i said what you can be reserved like i can go home every day (laughs) if i'm just going to a unit here and getting paid oh that's
1: yeah you get active duty pay. COLA, BAH, uh, BAS, everything that the normal active-duty soldier would get. It's just you never have to leave.
0: Because there was, there was uh, a couple slots back home in Pittsburgh when I was in the reserves. It was the um, 307th MP company out of New Kensington. And I loved those people. And, but there was a couple guys who had went AGR, and their whole job was with the state police. They would go pick up AWOLs. I was like, "What?" I was like, "That's inc- I was yeah. like, "That's awesome!" Like, <laughs> I would love to do that. But, uh, I, yeah, I ended up going active, and then, so. I would like to learn know more about your your time in Afghanistan. Yeah, because I think that's interesting. The, uh, you were in charge of their, you were in the police advisory command.
1: Yes. So there were five in Afghanistan at the time, just created, brand mm-hmm. new, in two thousand and seven. They actually started. Late 2006, early 2007, uh, I didn't, I mobilized in in May of 2007 from Hawaii, got into, um, where did we go to? Uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi, and then did one month of training there and then got into country through Kuwait. I couldn't wait to get out of Kuwait. It was so hot. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's not the place uh, to be. (laughs) Just get me in, get me on a plane, get me out I'd rather be in the war than sitting in Kuwait. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: And then, so that that was my job. And and because they created this brand new position, they needed six colonels to come over to be commanders. Um, And some were active duty, but most were guardsmen.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And there was one female with us, and then two of us. One was a prosecutor from West Virginia and myself. And the three of us became pretty close because we all showed up at Camp Shelby at the same time, got trained up and off. And so... I had spent almost 30 years of my career as a part-time, full-time soldier with never deploying. We mm-hmm. couldn't go to Desert Storm because our brigade wasn't wasn't called. I volunteered as an engineer officer, but my general at the time said, no, because if we go, I want you with me. I don't want you yeah. coming home when we're going up. And I said, okay, that makes sense. So. So I had to wait. And like my dad was in Vietnam, he was in Korea, he was in World War II. And so he had been all these places and we listened to all these stories. <laughs> yeah. And here he's got three sons all in the guard, all officers, and none of us have deployed.
0: Yeah, that's and always.
1: Yeah. And so I, I always felt not that being colonel was a nice thing to do. It was a great opportunity and a, and a, a fantastic career getting that far and all the uh, people that helped me get there because you can't do it by yourself. Um, so I, I. But I just didn't feel fulfilled until I deployed. And then, so they called me one day to have, oh, we have an engineer, uh, construction uh, person. I need somebody to come up to Iraq and help us with all these contracts and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, hang on. I'm a combat engineer. I know blow stuff up. I know how to get the infantry moving, but I've never built stuff. Let me just- <laughs> Yeah, you're um, the opposite. I learned that at, at <laughs> uh, Uh, Engineer advanced course, but I didn't, I didn't, I've never put it into practice. Mm -hmm. And so, and I became a policeman and I have a degree in criminal justice, not in engineering and architecture. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'm not really the person you want, but if you need me, I'll, you know, if you can help me, if I, you know, put the right people with me, I'll, I'll, that's fine. And they called me back and said, no, we'll, we'll got, we might have something else for you. And so a couple months went by and then, uh, I get notified from our mobilization officer that, hey, they're looking for law enforcement um, commanders to come over, people with law enforcement experience. And I said, well, perfect.
2: Yeah,
0: that's perfect.
1: I just left the department. I run the counter-drug program. I still connected with local law enforcement. Um, I'm there. And, and so I got up there, and that, that was my job. I commanded a, a group of 200 um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, Active Guard and Reserve, and uh, we basically help train the Afghan National Police for the central region, which is in and around the provinces in and around Kabul, all the way out to the Pakistan border. Ten of ten provinces, 110, um, I guess cities, wow. uh, and and counties, and so 110 districts, and then 10 provinces or 10 states, and so. Uh, Large group, 22,000 officers in the ANP, the Afghan National Police. So the two-star that was a police commander for the region had his hands full. Mm -hmm. Plus he had border police. Plus he had Kabul police. Um, And so we had all of that at first. And then they they separated Kabul a couple months later and moved the city police under another colonel. But that's my start to command time. And, oh, by the way, when you get there, there is no... You're going to be running a command, so you got to put up a. There's no building, there's no staff, there's nothing, there's nothing <laughs> except another colonel who I'm relieving and he's going <laughs> back home. and He's like, Joe, here's the vehicle, here's your <laughs> cell phone, have at it. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I quickly found some Air Force people that were assigned to me who were logisticians and uh, IT, and with that, and some Army. National Guard guys who were very good at property book stuff, put together everything. We accounted for all the equipment, all the vehicles, all the radios. And oh, by the way, I had to call in these teams that were, you know, three-hour drive away wow. uh, in other states. And and they had to cut through enemy lines and friendly lines to get to us. And so in the asymmetric warfare of Afghanistan. Um, and... But we made it all happen and uh, it was it was a challenge but it was so rewarding.
0: And it, I'm looking at your uh your resume. And it's so they're equivalent of a two star national police chief.
1: Right. So there's five regions, mm-hmm. right? There's north, south, east, west, and central. So the north the northern Afghanistan, out west Herat next to Iran then you had the one down south where the Taliban was still running around a lot of places. And then you had, they call it uh, East, which was more toward the Pakistan border, just south of Kabul. And then you had the central region. So there are five, um, either one or two star generals and their police rank and military is identical. All the same. And so, and many of the, like my the general I was a mentor for. He was younger than me, been fighting much longer than I've ever been fighting. Um, and so, who's mentoring whom really is the, the question. But be that as may, my team was there to help his his leadership, command team, understand, you know, logistics and personnel and all that kind of stuff. And they were he was a he was a young, uh, a long, young police chief at the district and level when the Russians were there, you know, 10 years before we had gotten there. And so he had been trained by the Russians in policing and some other forms of of military. And he would switch back between the army and the police department. So he was in the army as a general. He was in the police as a general. So he kind of flip-flopped back and forth. But super, super guy. He was uh, very passionate about national, the nationalism of Afghanistan. Not so much being a Tajik or a Hazar or Pashtun, it was more about being an Afghan.
2: Yeah. And
1: and that's what we were helping the Afghans try to understand because we, we I mean, I worked with all those different nationalities that made up Afghanistan or tribes, but they were so tribal and it's um it almost seems that the US is trying to head back in that direction. It's like we're we're Americans first
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then we're everything else after that. Right. So I, I mean mm-hmm. I'm German Irish Um, Scottish, British, Czechoslovakian, but I'm an American, so that's, you know, I might be all those things, but that's not what, who I am.
0: Yeah, and it's, because if you can get them, if you can get a country, like pretty much anywhere in the Middle East and have them just unify around, hey, you are a national of Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, you know, that gives them something all to just bond and rally around.
1: Right. Not to change their minds about their (coughs) tribe, but just to, to add another dynamic to their tribe and say, yeah, you're Pashtuns, yes. Absolutely, you guys stay together. Or you're Tajiks or Hazars, but you're also, you're Afghans. Mm -hmm. And nobody could ever take that away from you. And so if you believe in your country as Afghanistan, then you'll fight for that vice. Well, my family lives in the, the borderline that somebody created between Pakistan and Afghanistan that wasn't there when, you know, my grandfather's grandfather was yeah. in there, and so because the British or whoever drew that line, um, and not to say it didn't belong there or doesn't, but um, that's where the line was drawn. And so now you have families that live on both sides, or live in different countries, mm-hmm. but they just have to take a step across. Yeah, and there they are. And so, and then how do you close that border off? And how do you tell those families? Well, you can't. You guys can't deal with each other because this is a border you can't cross. Yeah. And and so those are the dynamics that that politicians need to deal with, that diplomats and all leadership in countries need to understand and deal with. That's actually on the ground. But, hey, those things matter and they matter to these people. And if we if we get everybody in the same sheet of music, then if they buy into all that, then they buy into their country. Um, And whether you're Taliban or not, Mm -hmm. you could still be Taliban and still be an Afghani. Of course, right. And yeah. so, and now you're just, but you have this area, um, and that's yours, and you command and control and do what you want there, but let everyone else live the way they want. I, but everybody's about power, I guess. Yeah,
0: well, that's why I was. I liked um, when I was in Iraq was under uh, General Petraeus, and his approach of just being like, "Hey, we got to be on the ground. We got to be in the communities. We got to be talking to people." Yep that's what we have to do like that to me i was like how 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 come that wasn't a thing before like what you know i don't make those decisions but i just i just felt like that like i just feel like community even when you go back to like your time as hpd and even kind of like what they're trying to talk about now is like community policing right you got to be in the community right. to to get everyone rallied to support you and and to support each other right. um so, and i i love watching documentaries about General Petraeus. Right. And we I used to go sit in on, on different briefings because I was personal security for the uh, commanding general of Task Force 134, so detaining operations. Okay. So we would constantly meet with um, diplomats and things in Iraq. Like we got to eat at the presidential palace and right. things. <laughs> I used to love that. But um, just the, the approach was always very um, hands-on with people, with General Petraeus. And uh, I always admired that and
1: well, the the Army as a whole, and even the United States military complex, had to switch from being, from fighting a war against, say, Russia in the Folder Gap of Germany, which was a heavy maneuver forces, large swaths of land, um, you know, bombers over the, and jet fighters, and that wasn't Afghanistan. You couldn't do that. And so you had to take in Afghanistan and Iraq, really, were were coin operations, right? They're um, they're small wars uh, that need a whole different framework. And so the I think the army wasn't prepared for the shift, and they started working it in early 2000, and it took several years for uh, all the units, the military units, to catch up. Uh, and so you had to get out of that, you know, that full World War yeah. construct of massive. Build up with, you know, hundreds of thousands of forces and corps and, and divisions and and just and, and then you're doing small arms combat and given terrain that, oh, by the way, you don't own. You might be the battle space commander, but you don't own that ground. Yeah. An Iraqi or Afghani, you know, governor, mayor, they own the ground. They're the ones that are going to be here when we're gone. Yeah. And,
2: that's, and
1: so that's, that's how, and how do you influence that and how do you play into that? in the community policing kind of thing. And so that was the big thing. It's, you know, me as just a mentor and a commander of a small unit, my mantra to all my teams were get with your governors, get with your mayors, get out to the shuras, make sure you're in meetings, make sure they see you. Um, and don't always go there up in up-armored stuff. If you can go with your police counterparts in, you know, something less than, you know, um, you know, M4s, flak vests, and helmets. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the way I travel. I travel in pretty much my soft cap with a nine mil strap to me without my armored vest because I travel with a two-star general, not because I felt safe, but because I wanted the the public to know, the Afghanis to know, look, I trust the people I'm with. That's why I dress down. And so now not everybody could do that Mm -hmm. because there wasn't, there were orders that were out there that, but my general told me that, hey, you know, you're an 06, You make decisions. You're representing us with them. However, you feel comfortable, and I was perfectly comfortable walking around. No, um,
0: yeah, and that makes sense because yeah. you kind of—it's not that you're letting your guard down, but you're just—you're showing people, like, hey, I'm not, right? You know, I trust you, so you know, I don't have to come around with all this, all this gear and things on. I, I know that you got my back, okay. hopefully. <laughs>
1: well, and you know, and back then they didn't have the blue on blue or blue on green. Um, killing that they had later on.
0: Yeah, I wanted Uh, to ask about that too.
1: So, I mean, it didn't happen while I was there. It happened uh, years or two later. And I think a lot of that well, one, the uh, Taliban or or other nations that sent people in there infiltrated the military and the police. Oh, yeah. And were basically there to kill Americans, as many as they could, anytime they could. But there was also a piece where we as soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, need to treat everybody with dignity and respect. I don't care what side of the fence you're on. Mm-hmm. So like me, I sat with my general and Taliban were, you know, six feet across the, the hall from me, or the, the office from me sitting on a couch, we're both staring at each other. <laughs> and I know who they are, they know who I am. Um, but I was there as a guest of the general, as the police commander, and the Taliban were there as a guest of the police chief Um, to have a chat Um, now I don't know what they were saying
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, but the you know the police chief looked at me and said you know these are my guests I said yes I got it and so we did not my team was like we got to arrest him we got I said no we're not doing anything because the chief had asked me these are his guests now once they leave the wire and they go do something absolutely time has you know it it that friendship or not friendship but that that respect given to them while they were there, uh, only lasted while they were there. Once they left the wire, th- then we could do something. Um, and so, but I, but I gave him my promise that we wouldn't do anything while they were there ta- talking. So,
0: yeah, and that's cool. That because and that just that that would destroy yeah. their trust exactly. if we did something there, and yeah. then just be screwed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I love the dynamic of 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 the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because. Like you were saying, you can't just go in with all this heavy equipment dropping bombs, right? Because that's somebody else's property. And I think that's something that even I haven't considered in the past. Like We're not necessarily there to annihilate everything. We're just trying to like, uh, you know, kind of rid the enemy out of their communities so they can understand what living semi-free at least, you know, really feels like and then they can, you know, hopefully manifest their own destiny in a sense. So. Yeah, that's, that's a new way. I never thought about it like you, you put it.
1: Well, and the... What was it? Um, the person who wrote COIN Doctrine, uh, counterinsurgency operations, basically said you cannot kill everyone in an insurgency. It's just not going to happen. Because people will blend into the, the surrounding environment and you won't know who they are. And, and you, you don't want to. It's about winning hearts and minds. It's not about killing everybody. And so there's no reason to annihilate everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to... St- I guess significantly attrit the other side so that their will to continue uh, ceases, and so that they capitulate at that point in time and said, okay, let's all let's ha- figure out how to get this work together. I mean, we didn't go in and obliterate Japan right. or Germany. We you know we kept as much intact as we could, but we had to get to that point of capitulation, right? And mm-hmm. so that's what war. Um, unfortunately, there are collateral. Pieces that happen. No one intends that to happen, but mm-hmm. those are just, that's the nature of the beast. If your government decides to do that and get into a war, then they own some of that yeah. collateral issue because they're the ones that got it you in there in the first place.
0: Well, it was, it was interesting because <clears throat> when I was, um, we would always visit Camp uh, Camp Bucca, which was a, a large detainee facility. They kept a lot of high-value targets yep. there. Uh pretty much none of them at least when I was there were from Iraq they were from other countries All the, and these were like the masterminds running the IED factories right. the snipers um, back in the day I don't know if you remember um, his name was Juba they used to call him Juba the Baghdad sniper and there's oh. still videos oh. and this guy was just Iranian trained <laughs> just taking out soldiers, and they would release these propaganda videos and things but um and it's so weird too, because when we would walk around these detainee facilities or the or the little or or smaller prisons around iraq that we were um helping out, and you would look at these these guys' faces and you you knew that they were responsible for for the deaths of, of fellow servicemen, but it's also like you know, they're, they are human too, and for whatever reason, like you're just both in this space at the same time, recognizing each other. Uh, for me, it was always a, a weird, like philosophical, um, I guess you would call it that, like dilemma, internal dilemma. Like I didn't want to hate the guy, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't hate, I didn't hate. But well, you couldn't,
1: yeah, because he's only wearing the uniform of his country, right? And you're wearing the uniform of your country,
0: and then you just. You just kind of wish that, for whatever reason, that this whole thing happened. That why are we there? You just kind of wish it didn't happen because you know these guys should be home with their families. Right. Our guys should be alive and at home with their families. Our men and women. Um, but unfortunately, you're just there at that point in time with each other after all these events. Yep. Um, it always kind of like it, it cycles through my mind, you know. Just it's, I guess, the human psyche in general and how we handle things, how these governments. You know, can and and I guess you'd call them like warlords or whoever. You know, they just they play the everyone with the strings, and they bring us into these events, and it's <laughs> millions of people suffering for the, these few people. But it's all right. That's another 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 conversation. Well, war
1: is nothing more than an extension of, of political and and diplomatic means um, from the leadership of one country to a leadership of another country. Yeah, and so. It's not the private starting a war. It's the the top that instigates the issue.
0: Yeah. So, and you said there was no like green on green, blue on blue incidents while you were there, yeah?
1: Not that I recall. There might have been one or two things down south, but I I really don't believe anybody had called. We didn't recognize anything as blue on blue.
0: Oh, I see.
1: And, And for me, it was just treat everybody with dignity and respect. There were certain things that happened that we as Americans didn't understand mm-hmm. about Afghans and I'm sure Iraqis had the same issue about, you know, these countries and what they may or may not do on certain days of the week. And so we just hey, that's that's them. That's not you know, that's not who we are, but we don't they don't we don't talk bad about them, they don't talk bad about us. You know, we all have our own cultural issues and concerns and and things that we do and practices and so just ignore what they're doing and, and mm-hmm. carry on with your career or your life and, and do things you want to do. And so, but I think some people just took it upon themselves to make fun of or maybe tease or, or and not really it. maybe they'd started as a joke, maybe not, mm-hmm. but they misunderstood their cultural practices and, and maybe said some things out loud that people didn't like Oh, yeah. And then now you've got people that are upset, and when you're you're like that, and you don't talk it out because you can't, or if you need an interpreter in between, mm-hmm. uh, you know those things happen. And then, uh, but I, I don't see you know you didn't see Americans sh- shooting them; it was always them shooting us.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and and there were lots of reasons for that. It wasn't just because Americans didn't understand their cultural differences, but there were like I said, infiltrators that. You know, the bad people got into their ranks, mm-hmm. and we're just waiting for opportunities. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, so I guess, do you have anything that you would consider your um, greatest accomplishment? Probably just...
1: In Afghanistan? Yeah. Well, ab- absolutely. Setting so, all that up, yeah. So, well, the big thing was, and yeah, if, if I had some pictures to show you, I can show you an empty building, Quonset hut, basically, or a, a hut, and then what we turn that into a talk or a tactical operations center. With TV screens and radios and computers and and I had a two section, a three section, a four section, a six, mm-hmm. and I, just everything you would think it, you would need in an operation center. We put that all together, and it wasn't me. It was here's my vision. Yeah, this is what I'd like. Go out and have fun, and they did, and they they <laughs> did amazing stuff. Uh, it was just truly, I mean, and they would come back and say, oh, I found a warehouse. It's got all these radios and got TV screens. Got okay. And, and I might or might not have been able to do what I did, but I, I got everything. I'm like, all right, <laughs> bring it all in here. Let's all account for it. Put it all on the books. I want everything. Nothing is off the books. Everything goes on by serial number on these mm-hmm. books. I sign for it all, and then I'll turn it over to my my replacement. And everybody did. They did everything. So everything was accounted for. Everything was there. Uh, maybe the acquisition wasn't always uh, by the paperwork, but it all got, it all got taken care of before mm-hmm. we left. And so... Uh, but yeah, I had to count for every Humvee, every piece of equipment in a Humvee. I mean, it was amazing, I, I things I didn't even know I had. Um, and so we got the talk together, got operations going. We had 24-7 ops. I was in contact with all the teams out there, even though they were hours away. Um, and so I felt comfortable. I felt comfortable that these young men and women that were there, you know, active guard and reserve, all different services, all worked together. Uh, and we had, oh, by the way, um, a couple, I think 100, uh, almost 100 or 50 to 100 civilian policemen that were on contract by um, a contracting company, um, defense contracting company, that were there to help us. And so they were the more law enforcement experience guys. We were there to help, not teach them law enforcement skills, but to teach them... Personnel accountability, equipment accountability, how to do intelligence, how to do other stuff, and so we we taught kind of the military piece, mm-hmm. and then civilian law enforcement did the practical police stuff, how to investigate an accident scene, how to investigate a crime scene, a murder scene, and things like that. Like I said, they didn't do traffic citation or anything, and so, but the big thing that that my takeaway from this whole thing that mm-hmm. really laid it on the line for me that we did the right thing was to get them to understand community policing. And so they, they didn't have the concept. I learned the concept back back in Hawaii with the HPD and, and working as a patrolman and as a detective on getting out with the community, meeting with them, understanding what the issues are, and then helping them solve these issues, whether we're involved or not. Mm-hmm. We, we may not You may not need a law enforcement component to solve it, but we're there to help solve problems. And so the one thing we had to do is help, one, get the, the police commander and then all of his chiefs uh, his 10 provincial chiefs and then his 100 district chiefs and then filtered that all the way through to the ground troops, the policemen on the ground, is understanding that you're the face of the A- Afghan National Police. Mm. You're the ones with the uniform, with the badge and the gun. And so you need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, and then when I first got there, the police were... They they had a different mindset, and they would stand on the street. They would collect taxes from people, and so I said, "We we need to stop that. We need to <laughs> taxes so, or yeah, bribes. <laughs> be that as it may." Um, and so you know the 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 country now had a, a, a way to get taxes. They now had revenue streams, and and they had systems in place, mm-hmm. albeit they were still getting it all together. But um, by and large, they had systems in place to help them. Financially, to for the country to make money, and so grabbing you know ten dollars from the taxi cab driver, or the you know the local food guy driving through, and that needs we we need to stop that. If if that's not what we're there for, mm-hmm. which it wasn't, then we need to stop that. And that that took me a couple months to get that through to get it through. Uh, And then also to be good policemen, to be policemen that, okay, you're not going to write tickets for traffic, but you need to get the traffic moving. There's so much traffic in Kabul. Unbelievable. And so it's how do you – and people would – there's no such thing as a one-way street. There's always two ways to everything, even though there are signs that say that. And so the the matter of, okay, let's keep everybody flowing in the right direction. Let's get accidents off the road nicely, and let's help people – clean up and, and get their things going. If they need a tow, if they need a fix, uh, it would be difficult. They don't have tow trucks per se there, but mm-hmm. they could help people move. If a, a family lives on the upper hills of the mountain and um, you see mom and dad who are 90 years old trying to walk up groceries, let's go help them get that stuff up there. Because even though you live higher up on the mountain in Cabo and you got a nice view,
2: mm-hmm.
1: doesn't mean – that costs more than the person down at the street level because there's no road up here. Yeah. There's no car going up there. And so you got to walk through the sewer system Ugh. to get up there. And so a um, little different contrast than what we believe in and we're so spoiled in America. And until you get to other countries and see this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you don't realize, uh, not you personally, but people out there in the world that don't understand what they have is so important. And it's it's much it's way above what anybody else has, uh, even some of the poorest people here in America have way above what oh, yeah. uh, other countries have. And so at the end of my tour, just before we had a big meeting with all the five uh, regions came together, all the police chiefs, uh, the two, three, and four stars that ran the police, minister of interior was there, the president was there. Uh, so we had a and and my generals were there, um, the uh, the ground commander the c sticker they call them combined area. Of, I, I forget the terminology, it's been a number of years. but So the three-star uh, was there. Um, General Cohn was the, the person in charge back then. And so everybody showed up at this meeting at the hotel. And so we had a big briefing. Everybody, each region covered their high points, some low points, some issues and concerns. Kind of like we would expect in the military for a briefing. Mm-hmm. And so we did all of that. Um, and at the end of that, the minister of interior uh, and the uh, told the, the U.S. general, "Hey, the central region—that's the region every other region should emulate. These guys are doing it right. They got the concepts down. Community policing is working. The uh, the the Afghan national people view the police a little bit differently than when we got there, um, till you know six eight months later, and so." We, I knew it was on the right track. And mm-hmm. I knew even it was a long shot and in trying to convince somebody to change is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it takes years and decades, but they, I, and I commend the general for taking it up and saying, you know what, we'll try it. I'll make sure can get implemented. And he did, and, and they got accolades for it. And, and I awesome. believe he's a three-star today, um, still um, at the Afghan National Police Headquarters level.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I- I wonder what he's thinking about with what's going on now with the, with the withdrawal.
1: I, I'm i not sure he always wanted to come to America. He always wanted to get away and get his kids here. He wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Oh, really? Um, not. I think more so to see the rest of the world, not yeah. because he didn't like Afghanistan, but he always wanted to travel. And so that was one of the things um, he had told me is, how do I get to America to come visit? Um, and so that was, you know, I was trying to help facilitate that there was a program where we could bring um say the general and, and several of his key staff to come with us to america to go see a police department in the mainland oh, So that would have been yeah and and they had it done um huh. but so we were trying to get that done but it was a lot harder because in 2007 2008 every all the big money and stuff were going to iraq the war in iraq and Afghanistan was not getting all the all the the love that it should have got mm. uh, it was still getting things but it wasn't getting as much most of the focus or the the you call it military terms the uh, the main effort was Iraq and the supporting effort was Afghanistan and years before that it was the other way around right so.
0: yeah and that's interesting too like I wonder what kind of impact it would have had if you brought over like their leadership and Kind of showed them the U.S. in a sense. And, and this is...
1: Yeah. Looking- to understand police departments the way we yeah. see.
0: Yeah. I, so I guess would they have to like provide security and things? Is that why like it would just cost too much to bring them over? Or they were just like, nah, we're not, we're not spending nothing on it? Uh,
1: it would have been expensive, but it wouldn't have been impossible. I mean, I, I think maybe there was a fear of uh, somebody not wanting to go home.
0: Oh, you yeah. back to Afghanistan. Yeah, that's true, too. Um, I, you don't want to lock them down while they're here, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes yeah. sense. It kind of reminds me of like the, all the interpreters that we were supposed to bring over but haven't.
1: <laughs> but it was, a, it was a, I know they had done it before, so there was a way to do it. It was just, how do you?
0: Yeah, because it's kind of like, I, I, I think of it in a sense, like we, we were saying before, like if you go to another country and you see what they, what they have compared to what we have, yeah. you, you come back and it's like, oh. You know, our homeless people have like iPhones now. They should—that's uh, a whole other discussion. But I'm just saying, like, when you look at the U.S. and how m- far better off we are, even if you're homeless yeah. compared to the other parts of the world, it's uh,
1: yeah. They don't, uh, yeah. Their homeless populations a lot different than our. yeah.
0: So you leave. So what you did a year? Yeah, just
1: uh, just shy of a year. I, I it was probably yeah at or about 365 days, so about see, 10 months boots on the ground in Afghanistan.
0: That yeah, seems like you were like, you had to, you were hustling. <laughs> Cause you, it had was, to, you had to set it all up and then that, you had to start meeting with everyone and build those relationships.
1: Well, all of that was ongoing while they were setting up the talk. Oh, I so see. it was kind of a, we still did our day job. Mm-hmm. So we kind of set the talk up at night in, in our half hours, but during the um, probably you know, eight to five, we were at the headquarters. We were out and about in the streets with the Afghan national police, you know, doing operations, doing things with I them. See. And as soon as they, um, as soon as they would bed down for the night and kind of start sending everybody home, I would stay back for a little while. Cause there's, they had a, uh, an NDS general who's kind of like their uh, CIA FBI kind of person. Mm. And so I would, you know, I'd have tea with him and, and, get to know him a lot better. There was the deputy commander, I would hang out with that guy. And then they had a a detective or CID person, like someone in charge of their criminal investigation part, Mm -hmm. uh, not the patrol per se. And so I would sit down with them and so I'd have tea at night with them. And and so the two star would go home um, and relax for a while. And then I would just hang out and I would send all my team back. Mm -hmm. And I would just have a police truck take me back later. Oh, Which see. drove my people absolutely
0: crazy. <laughs> yeah, right? Because you, you didn't have like personal security details. No, I, I mean,
1: I had one, but I sent him back to go eat dinner. Yeah, I see. I said, I'm fine. I'm in the police headquarters. I, I'm surrounded by you know, 60, 70 cops. I, we're okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and having been a cop, I was okay ben, because I was a policeman. Uh-huh. To me, it was okay. And when you get in country and you get, anytime you go to war and you're in that environment, you accept death quite yeah. easily. You've come to the realization that you're going to die. Yeah. And and it more so, I mean, I might have had it when I was a policeman and I didn't understand it. But when I got into country after a first two weeks and I realized, okay, I might never leave here. But mm-hmm. you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm fine because I'm here for a purpose. And that purpose wasn't about Joe Logan. That purpose was about Afghan National Police mm-hmm. and what can I do to help them help themselves, help their country. And that's what's really that's what made me fulfilled by the time I left.
0: Yeah, and you're right about that. Like, I think when people first are leaving or getting ready to leave, they're around their family and friends, there's the nervousness, they're scared. Yep. You get to Kuwait, you hate Kuwait so oh, yeah. much, you just wanna get out of there, you're not even thinking about <laughs> anything. I think it took me probably maybe a month, but we were running missions. When I first got there, we were training. Yeah, we were onboarding and learning from the PSD team. We were yeah, leaving. Yeah, your know, left seat, right seat. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then once we took over, yeah, I think that you just, you're just worried about the guys next to you. And right. really, I never really, I th- yeah, I think it probably took me about a month and it was just like, yeah, we'll just, we'll go if, if something happens, something happens. But yeah. you're just, the other thing is I think you're so confident in the training. Um, because I think when, especially when you're doing that training right when you're about to leave, you start taking it more serious than if it's just a regular training event right. throughout the year you start taking it more serious and especially when you start doing training in the country and I'm not sure how Afghanistan was because I didn't go there just Iraq but Iraq is like random mortar attacks and you would hear vehicle bombs going off right outside the gates and things you just you learn to take it real serious real fast yeah
1: yeah so you're scared to death because they teach about all that and then Mm -hmm. you get in country and you don't know who's friendly who's enemy. yeah right but one of the things I had to do is it I quickly learned it took me about three months to figure this out but I would get people that are redeploying, right? So they they went to Iraq, maybe a year ago, and now their their turn is coming up again, and they're coming in country to Afghanistan, Oof, and they're going to drive their Humvees like they were driving in Iraq. And I and I said, <laughs> whoa, 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 wait a minute. We we own the hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. We don't ram cars. We don't drive like maniacs. We don't we don't do any of those things. <laughs> yeah, you still got to be scared about everybody on the road because the motorcycle might be a suicide guy. It might be the taxi cab driver next to you. But but you cannot let that bother you to the point where you um, we just have to accept the fact that we're in and amongst bad people with many more good people. Mm-hmm. Not Iraq might have been different, but Afghanistan is not.
0: The Iraq and was so, a lot uh, of good. I didn't meet yeah. any Iraqi person that we had to interact with or anything that I, I didn't like.
1: Yeah, I think I've just heard stories about, you know, people ramming convoy's and Oh things. yeah. Now well, we had those things that happened in Afghanistan. That right? didn't have the beast I can. Yeah. But I
0: just think like it's kind of like with somebody's in your neighborhood and they're trying to tell you, hey right. back up, hey, hey man, what?
1: <laughs> so I I to me I took it upon myself to and I had one team. They came to me one day and they said, "You know, sir, we drive on this certain road every day and every day we drive there's a hillside and then these got these these young kids that, or they're you know, maybe 10 to 12 to to 15 years old, they're throwing rocks at us and they're gonna kill us one of these days. So <laughs> can we shoot them? And I'm like, What? No. no, what would you? What makes you think, could you do that in the United States? No, no? then why would we do it here? Yeah. So there's a lot of mentality, you gotta change cultures and minds. Yeah. Um, and so you, you never know what you're gonna get when you get there, right? So you, you've got people you've never met before, you didn't train as a unit, so you're not sure. So it's very difficult mm-hmm. when you're thrown into that kind of system. Of, of here take command of this organization that has never met each other and now you've got to form this huge conglomerate Ooh. team and oh by the way people are hours away yeah. and you got to get everybody to kind of get on the same sheet of music and you're other people's battle space and you got to cross people's battle space and they get upset because they don't know who you are and you're driving and, <laughs> and oh by the way the humvee that i was in came from afghanistan so the blue forest tracker or it came from Iraq, so it still had the Iraq unit number and didn't have the current unit, so nobody knew it belonged to. It. <laughs> and so you're just you're driving around going, "Well, who is this?" Well, I can't tell you who is this on an open radio, but you might want to talk to so and so, and they'll tell you who I am. And then you get sorry, sir, didn't mean to, you know. And so you, they get to know who you are, and, and <laughs> but they know who you are because the chain of command can tell you, "Oh, that guy is so and so, and he's."
0: The guy, I think, uh, he made a wrong turn there, bro. This is not Iraq. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. All the little nuances.
1: Oh, it's, it's amazing, and it's, it's so challenging, but so rewarding. I wanted to go back so many times. My wife is like, no, <laughs> no. I would have I'm liked the
0: locks. to go back in like a different role, um, something more like dealing with the actual community. I guess like yeah. civil affairs or something. Yeah. Um, one thing I just didn't, I, I, I didn't, I never understood is, and I never agreed with is the fact that. Um, the The rules of engagement like they send troops out to just walk, and they can't react until something happens. but in my opinion, like if something happens, it's too late like
1: well so the it's all about trust, right, so yeah. you gotta build you as that squad or platoon going out of the wire or team to do you know maybe not you're not trying to find a bad person, you're out mm-hmm. there to go maybe to Ashura, or you go there to the bazaar because a couple soldiers want to buy something. But you're going there as a team, and you're out there to integrate into their society, their communities. And and then you need to meet them and get to know them. So mm-hmm. you got to build that trust factor. Yeah. Once you build a trust factor, you're going to see the guy on the side going and starting to look funny like he's got a twitch. But he's telling you there's something bad around the corner, mm-hmm. or somebody's waiting, or that's a roadside bomb, or that, that car's wired. And so... They, they, And they did it all the time in Afghanistan and Iraq. They saved countless oh, yeah. lives of U.S., not just U.S. soldiers, but all kinds of people. And so the, the, there is a—but got to build that trust first, mm-hmm. just like the police departments here in the United States. If you don't build trust in a community you're going into, no one's going to tell you, give it the time of day.
0: Yeah. It's, <laughs> I loved the bazaars in Iraq, though, that <laughs> you say that. And the tea—because we used to go to the Minister of Justice's— um, compound and the general would meet with him and then some of the PSD team members would be in there too right. we wouldn't take our weapons um, and we wouldn't wear our gear we would just be there kind of right. like um, you were saying earlier then it would always give us tea now, of course we had to put like a ton of sugar in it yeah. but uh, those are just kind of the see I had a different, uh, I had a different role than right. I guess uh, a lot of the average soldiers had You know, we didn't, I didn't kick in doors um Thank, thank, thankfully we didn't lose anyone. We didn't right. get, um, we didn't get hit. Supposedly we got shot at our rear truck, who was a, a National Guard unit um, that was attached to us. They apparently got shot at, supposedly, but uh, kind of think that they wanted a combat action badge. So oh. we didn't really take it that serious. Yeah, but other than that, it was uh, uh, nothing really major. Um, yeah, you hear the music, yeah? Yeah, yeah I was like, it's, so, it's always jamming.
1: Yeah. It was
0: the, it's in their backpack.
1: <laughs> a different group of people hanging around. They went into the store next door.
0: Yeah. So when uh, so when you were packing up, closing up shop, I'm assuming you gave a, an amazing handoff to the next guy or girl. Yeah, we did the
1: our, our normally you change, you you pass the guide on, mm-hmm. you know the the unit flag. Yeah. Um, but we, I passed the cell phone. So that was, <laughs> guess, that was, but that's all we had. Yeah. But I, then we did make a, uh, we did make a uh, regional police advisory command. I paid for the, the guide on mm-hmm. basically the flag. So somebody when the Sergeant Major got a stick and, uh, and everything and put it all together. So that became the, the, the way that we changed command after that. Oh, so, that's awesome. Uh, we did all that. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was very sad when I left. I mean, I got to, and a lot of teams changed out when I took over. In about three months, I started losing half my people. And then I started getting more people coming in. And so, you know, you just get to meet these people. You see them, you know, maybe once every other week because you've got to make battlefield circulation and stuff. And then, oh, by the way, you've got to do all the administrative meetings you got to go to. And I think there was at least twice a month, a week we were, I was at Camp Phoenix with my general we were briefing the three star who's briefing the president. And so mm. you gotta, you gotta, know, you gotta get all your ducks in a row, get your yeah. information up there and get all that data going forward. And so, you know, and then you, and you've got to get out, I've got to go meet with and sleep out in the field with all the other units that are out there with my teams. And then, Oh, by the way, go meet all the other police districts. Cause my general, I, I'm taking him on, he, you know, we're going to go battlefield circulation. He's like, what? I said, we're going to go see all the districts. I don't know where they are. So you got to help me. Wow. And basically my way of getting him out of the headquarters yeah. and saying, Hey, let's go, let's go visit all these places. And we drove everywhere. I mean, and I was told, don't go down there. You're going to get shot. Don't go over there. You're going to get shot. I'm like, well, I'm not here to get shot, but we're going because I got troops over there or general's got to see people over there. And I don't know this for a fact, but I know, I, my general knew everybody, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And so I believe he put some word out that says a, hey. so everywhere I went, my teams got shot at when they were out in some places, rarely, but it happened. Um, but everywhere I went, nothing happened. And oh, the one awesome. time I came home on leave for a week and it took me longer to get home than I spent on boots on the ground. but. Um, the general went out to recon and do battlefield circulation on him, on his with his staff. They got shot at. So I was like, I was the rabbit's foot. So you wait till I come back, <laughs> then let's go out. And, and but you know, I he's a general. He's going to do what he's going to do. So. Yeah. um But these are the things that happen. You you know you're there, and I went all. I got to ride horses. I mean, I thought they set me up. They put me on an Afghan racehorse, and that thing almost killed me. <laughs> but a lovely horse, and he and I got. We, got th- we came to a come-to-Jesus moment there for a minute, and he finally realized, okay, you're in charge. And so uh, it was good fun. And, and then I played a little joke on all the generals who thought they got one over on me by putting me on a racehorse. Um, and so I hid from them for about 20 minutes, and they were all panicking. <laughs> Where did he go? Who, somebody kidnapped him. And, we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> and I come trotting around with the horse, and they're like, oh, he's alive. I said, yeah, I'm alive. Thanks. That's awesome. But yeah, my legs were sore for two weeks after, because if they don't have saddles, right? So you learn how to ride a horse, squeezing.
2: <laughs>
1: so it's like all those muscles you never knew you had, you you now realize you have. them. I
0: don't think I ever rode a horse. Um,
1: yeah, I I've, I've rode horses with saddles, but not like that. And so, but it was, you know, I I look back and even today I can remember all the things I did, even though it was. You know, a, a number of years ago. Um, but I remember all the the you know good, bad, and different. I remember everything. Yeah. And uh, it's just like police work. I can uh, I used to keep um, uh, shoe boxes in my trunk, all my notebooks. These little brown notebooks. They oh had. wow. And I for every time and we and they'd last a couple weeks and you'd get a new one, and then you know and you that's all your information. You go write the report from the notebook, and you throw it in there. And I I could. You know, decades later, pick one up, open it up to a page and go start reading and go. And then it would come back in my mind and I would remember everything that happened. Like I'm watching a video. It was just amazing.
0: You still have those or?
1: Um, I have them somewhere. I just can't find them. But I have have all the green notebooks I've kept since I uh, probably became, I think about the time I made lieutenant colonel, I started saving those. And so all the different jobs I've had. Since I was a counter-drug coordinator, I've kept my notebooks for those. Just someday I figured I'd write maybe some kind of memoir. Not that anybody would read it, but just just to write something down so I'd be able to pass that on to my grandkids and say, hey, here's what granddad did.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You should should write something. Interesting. (laughs) It would be interesting to share those uh, experiences. And then so when you came back, what was that like? What was the... Because you were so wait, what rank were you when you were in Afghanistan? I was a colonel. Oh, you were a colonel, yeah. full bird. Probably. Oh, okay. So then you come back, and you're, you're active duty, yeah? AGR still, or how? Does yeah.
1: That... Well, I came back. Yes. So I coming off of active duty, Title mm-hmm. Ten, converting back into well, what I thought I was converting back into AGR, mm-hmm. going back to the counter drug program, but little. Unknowns, unbeknownst to me, I was, I was already selected for the chief of staff position for the Army National Guard here in Hawaii.
0: Oh, that's awesome! And
1: and that job was a GS fifteen uh, federal technician job. Wow! And so they told me that if you want to accept that job, you have to leave AGR and become a GS fifteen. Mm-hmm. Now that didn't sit well with the spouse because you're going to lose you know, about fifteen, thirty thousand dollars 30000 a year Ooh. in difference in pay, right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> But um, I believe that, you know, that's what the organization wanted. I'm here to serve. I'm not here to dictate how, and it wasn't my place to say, I could have said no, and I could have stayed where I was, and mm. I would have retired several years later as a colonel, and, and that would have been the end of my career. Uh, but I... In the back of my mind, I always thought that there was, you know, and I, I'm i not the, I was raised a Roman Catholic, but I'm I'm not the most religious person. I believe in God and I believe, you know, that they have control over things that I don't know. Mm. And so in the back of my mind, I believe that, and I, I, my wife and I had the conversation. I said, it's okay. We might lose the money now, but I think in the end, we'll be okay. Yeah. And, and I just, I'll trust God to, to let him make those decisions for me in, in the future and how we go. And so, and my wife got a, so when I became the chief of staff, she had to get, she had to leave her position because she was a, the executive assistant to the commander and the chief of staff. So she can't work for me. Oh yeah. So uh, prior to me leaving for Afghanistan, the general uh, who came from the Army Reserve to be the adjutant general, um, my wife ended up getting a job in the Army Reserve at the 9th Mission Support Command at Fort Shafter Flat. And so she got a raise for a a higher GS step, uh, well, two steps. And so she did the same job, but she got a higher pay for it. And so then that led me to be the (laughs) chief of staff. And so, yeah, it all kind of worked out. And she did that for a number of years. Um, and then she finally retired uh, several years later.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I can't even get a GS7 job. I don't know. They keep <laughs> denying me. Oh, man, I don't, know, I don't know what all I got to put on my resume. It's,
1: it's all how you write the resume and the keywords that you use within uh, the system because they use algorithms in yeah. computer AI programs to basically.
0: It's just tough. Like, I don't want to make a thousand resumes. But that's do. probably why I won't get You do. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and then. So, wait, you Forgive me but your role as a chief of staff civilian or
1: well no cuz also well, in the army reserve if you're a GS employee mm-hmm. and in the member of the guard, of the reserve then the, the <clears throat> positions aren't semerger linked mm-hmm. in other words you can be you can be a GS 12 colonel as an operations person in the GS world mm-hmm. and you could have an E8 who's a GS-14, your boss, because he's been there
0: long. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, but in the guard, we wanted to avoid that, that rank inversion issue. So we didn't have Title V civilians per se, regular federal technicians. They were, your rank and your position had to match. Your military rank and your civilian position had to match. And if they didn't match, then you got a 30-day letter, and you had to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. You had to move, get promoted, or do something. And so, um, or you ended up unemployed. So <laughs> so you quickly got to learn the system and uh-huh. then understand that. So as a colonel, uh, <clears throat> my GS-15 was I was the administrative officer over the entire Hawaii Army National Guard. I was the senior full-time person because wow. my one-star commander was wow. a part-timer. So... Yes, he was my boss, but he wasn't there Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. So who's making all those decisions Monday through Friday to keep probably 25, 30% full-time force of that 3,000-man Army National Guard unit moving every day? Mm -hmm. That's the Chief of Staff. And so that was my role. Pay, um, you know, finance, uh, uh, equipment, you know, all the Title 10 functions, man, train, and equip, was my responsibility. So all of those colonels worked for me, and so I had to make sure that all the full-time staff, whether AGR or technician, because there are other GS-14s and 12s and 11s and 9s, mm-hmm. uh, and there were AGRs at colonel and captain and, and so on. So they all worked for the chief of staff, um, and then I answered to the one-star part-timer, but then the adjutant general who was full-time, even though he's a state employee, but he also has to wear a uniform every day. Yeah. And he's a military two-star general, but he's a state employee. But he's my boss, even though I'm a federal technician. I don't answer to anybody but him. Um, although there's a deputy and there's some other people in there.
2: But
0: yeah. yeah, so you are like, in uniform? Yes, every day. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. that starts to make yeah. more sense now. So
1: it's easy, my wife didn't have to buy a lot of clothes. For yeah,
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Can I ask, was your wife military or civilian? She was, she was
1: a de- Department of the Army civilian. Oh, so not military. She worked for the military.
0: Oh, I see you. Cool, yeah. cool. And then uh, director of operations, Army National Guard. <laughs> How did you like that one?
1: So I, um, well, so I did the chief of staff job for two and a half years. Yeah. And then the tag wanted to bring me up to his level to mm-hmm. be the chief of staff of the joint staff, which is something that was created back when I was in the counter-drug program. Um, and I, had, I wrote a thesis on it from my master's uh, at the Army War College as a, a young lieutenant colonel. Um, and then after that, so we started to get this formed in every state and territory, but it wasn't full-on established. They, they, the concept that I think National Guard Bureau out of Washington, D.C. had was this is going to be you know, the, the Title X equivalent to a joint staff. Uh, and we're going to get joint credit for all these jobs we're going to do, and we're going to be joint. Mm-hmm. Well, to an extent, it works, and that's what we wanted, but then it morphed into domestic operations. So anytime you did anything locally within the state to support of federal, state, and local law enforcement or community-based or what the governor needed for disaster response, any of those things, emergency management type, were domestic operations. And so what we we changed civil support into... Uh, civil support is what the active duty military would do in support of uh, civilian agencies, mm-hmm. as long as it's not law enforcement. Uh, and But the Guard would do National Guard domestic operations. And so we could do law enforcement. We could do all, a number of things. So in 2008, eight nine, we had APEC here. Yeah. I was at 11. One of those years. And so I was the, the chief of staff of the Army National or the Joint I think staff. it was 11. Yeah. So when APEC came, of course, you had President Obama coming, and you had all these other uh, presidents and, and mm-hmm. prime ministers from how many other countries in the Pacific all coming to Hawaii? That's awesome. Um, and we were only concerned about three that was Russia, China, and US. So those are the three presidents, it was the major concern of, uh, but other people had other responsibilities. We were just focused on those three. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you other US forces. And so we put together uh, about a thousand guardsmen on state active duty in support of federal, state, local law enforcement. And while they weren't armed that you could see, they had all the requirements they needed in the event they needed them. Mm-hmm. And so they were in other Humvees at arm's length. And so they were well versed in how to use them so rules of use of force and all kinds of things we sent them to training with hpd and and they got all this qualifications and we had uh um we had electronic weapons so tasers and things like Mm. that so less than lethal means we we used all those things we got trained in and so but as the chief of staff of the joint staff, my job is to make sure all that works and Ooh, runs yeah. and is coordinated. And I'm, I'm working with the TAG and all the federal, state, and local agencies and trying to coordinate all of this for as long as APEC lasted, ten or twelve days. Um, got none of the credit for it, but that you know, I mean, I did. <laughs>
0: That's I did. how it goes, uh, though, right? Yeah. But you know,
1: I'm. The, I, but I don't. To me, it's all about making it happen. Yeah. So getting yeah. it done. Get everybody get home safe, and then let's go on. And Monday we go back to work. And we're normal.
0: It also seems like yeah. you're you're the type of person that loves a challenge. Absolutely. And absolutely. Those types of things really keep your brain um, functioning, yeah. I <laughs> think so. I, I'm Frankie.
1: never scared to jump into any new job with both feet and just go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't need to research the job. I mean I, I do basic research. Mm-hmm. But I mean I don't I don't try to find the last person who had it, tell me all the intricate details. I'll need to know what do and write down what policy procedure I gotta do for the no, just get me in the job, and mm-hmm. I'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah. that's always the best way, to just more hands-on, yeah? Yep. Yeah. So you were the full bird. When did you get your first star? So. And were you proud? Were you like? So yeah, I, I,
1: I got selected for a, a I got submitted and, and was a, granted a certificate of eligibility, mm-hmm. a COE, that went up through Congress and the president. And and so that last Two years, three years, I think. And so um, there was another colonel with me. We both got COEs at the same time. And then um, uh, one adjutant general retired. The new gen- general came in. <clears throat> and then um, they promoted this other guy because he was part-time and I'm full-time. So it's very difficult to make general if you're full-time because there's no position for you per se. There is, and there's a there was a way to do it. But nobody had done it before, and so it's like Logan, you're not going to be the first one. We're, we have to we have to feel this out. We got to see how other <laughs> states are doing. Yeah, I said, fine, okay. So then I had to worry about okay. So if I wanted to make general, now I had to go figure out. I had to get a job outside and get a full time gig going on. So I couldn't go back to the police department because I'd been out almost you know 15 years now and so can I go back into that can I join law enforcement somewhere else can I do some so I started putting resumes out so I started learning how to write resumes Mm -hmm. for other GS positions outside of the Hawaii National Guard I could be a GS anywhere else Mm -hmm. and then and then you have to have positions and there's only um in the army guard there was only three positions to make general and you were either the the tag the deputy adjutant general or you were the brigade commander at the time was a one-star bill and then they took that away. So, yeah. th- and they converted them all to O6s. And so the, then the only way was to be the chief, the director of the joint staff. So you could be army guard or air guard, but if you held that GS-15 position, you could be a one-star. So that was the other way to do it. And hmm. so, but it's all about timing and it's all about making everything work. And so, uh, Timing for me wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. Um, I had put in for other things. I did a couple of interviews. Uh, I almost got selected for one position, but I kind of backed out um, for the, I think it was the sustainment unit, the theater sustainment unit. Um, And I was, you know, I I, I wanted it, but I I wasn't quite sure that I was ready to leave military service yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then the so Governor uh, Abercrombie was not doing well in the polls. I saw this at, at the end of his term. I thought, you know, I, I watched Governor Ige do his opening, um, uh, it's not a podcast, but an opening Facebook Live or something he did mm-hmm. at Moanalua Elementary School or Pearl City, one of the Pearl City Elementary Schools because he's from the district of Pearl City as a senator. And so I saw that and I said this guy's going to be our next governor. So then I said, well, let me just hang around. I know I can apply for the position. I got a COE. I had to go in for an extension, so I got that just before the governor uh, lost his, his uh, election primary election in August, and then it was inevitable in November. Right. And whoever the Democratic governor was was going to get elected. Um, although we had you know some talented other people uh, in the other party, but it just wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. after. Governor Lingle was the first time in 40 years there was a Republican governor. It was gonna be a while before the next Governor Lingle type person came along. And so, you know, and and so I saw, I, I, in my mind, I realized he's gonna be our next governor. Let me give this one last shot. If I uh, put in for the the tag position, I think I'm qualified. I've worked for the last two adjutants generals. I've been a Colonel for uh, at least seven years now working for them, working with them, representing them all over the place. And so I I think I have, but I didn't know all about the job, but I militarily, I understood. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I applied. I was one of 10 applicants and applied for the deputy and or the adjutant general position. They're both state entity positions. Uh, Went in for the interview, uh, was kind of different. Uh, in my perspective because the governor was there for the interview and I didn't expect him to be there the first (laughs) day I figured you get through the initial um, his inner circle and if you can get through that then you get to go meet the boss if he likes you he hires you you know he's going to meet several other people whatever chemistry works right so they interviewed all of us uh, like I said the governor was there Um, three weeks go by I figured no this is done Uh, I would have known by now Sure enough, on a Wednesday, like the 27th of December, he calls and and asks me, would you like to be the tag?" And I said, absolutely. And so I accepted. And then he says, you start on the first. And I said, well, I think this might have been the 28th or 29th. Yeah, the 29th on a Wednesday. And Friday was the first. It was a holiday. (laughs) And then Saturday and Sunday. And I'm like, I'm going to go from a GS-15 to a state employee. And I have to do it by the 1st, wow. so I had, that means I had Thursday, I needed to be at the headquarters to, to let everybody know, or at least the state off. Op- but I couldn't tell anybody, until the governor gave the announcement on the news, at the three <laughs> o'clock news on, um, on Thursday, uh, on Thursday, the, uh, the New Year's Eve day, and so <laughs> it was, um, it, it was, it, it was a challenge, and like, I love challenges, and yeah, so, yeah. But sure enough, I went down the next morning, and I went to the, the state office uh, that works there for the Department of Defense. And I said, um, I need I need your help, and, and here's what I need to do. And, <laughs> and she looked at me and laughed. She goes, you know, you're like the 10th person to come in here and say they're the tag. And you need to do this. And so, you know, we'll wait till the governor gets the announcement at, at, at 3 o'clock. And, and then, you know, you can, I said, no, you've you got to understand, because tomorrow is a holiday. And I've got to go from GS-415 to a state employee tomorrow. Wow. And so I need to be on the list. And I need to do all the paperwork. And she just laughed again. And I, and, I, and it's just timing. So my yeah. phone goes off. And back then we had Blackberries, And so the governor had had the signed letter that says you've been appointed as the adjutant general. And I got that and I said, how does this help? And she looked at that and I went, oh. and I won't say exactly what she said, but. She got the message and then that was it. And they went to work and they were fantastic. They were, yeah, we, and we had a good, and I used that years later um, <laughs> in conversations with other people. Like, Cause it's a great story. I mean, they didn't know they, you know, and, and we have gang, we have people that play practical jokes all the time. Right. And then I had to go upstairs and, and let, and the tag was off. He was gone. So I couldn't tell him and I assume he already knew because they would have told him you're not being reinstated. But then the deputy was a friend of mine, a guy that I worked with and, and a great officer. Uh, and I had to go tell him that, oh, by the way, me and, and so-and-so are now going to be the deputy, the agent general and deputy. And, and he had his room cleared. He was all ready for whatever happened happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was one of the 10 that applied to be the adjutant general. And and so I, I felt awkward to tell him because I didn't know it was me telling him. but. I figured I should at least give him the courtesy. I, I as an off, as an officer to officer, you got to have that courtesy, even though I wasn't supposed to. But yeah. I, and I told him, and he was really he understood, he got it. And, Especially
0: when, if there's a time crunch like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, I don't know much about like the paperwork and things that it takes to transition one to the other, but
1: it, it's it's just um, you know your pay, your. Um, Emergency card, your your kids, your dependents, your yeah. you know your W two forms, your W four forms. You know how do you fill out all the forms that you need to to really to become a state employee? It, it, it's it's money. I mean, it's not. It's mon- it's monotonous stuff, mm-hmm. but it's so necessary. Um, and and the people that work in the state office can do it quickly because they know what all that means and they if you asked me to fill it out I'd be like
2: (laughs) yeah uh, yeah,
1: (laughs) I'd be there for a week still trying to figure it out but they're amazing people they did they did it all in a couple hours and they were done
0: oh that's awesome yeah and then so what so then Friday is the holiday
1: right so that oh so that was Wednesday Wednesday night Wednesday afternoon so Thursday comes along um so Thursday morning I go in I get all the paperwork done I'm still at GS-14, but now we're having a block party on our neighborhood. So everybody's (laughs) waiting for the three o'clock news because everybody knows the governor, the new governor's gonna pick his cabinet and he's waiting for all these things. January 1st, you start because Mm -hmm. December 5th, he was sworn in already. So he's already the governor. And so January 1st, the start of the new year, everything. So there's certain positions he didn't fill yet or he didn't name yet. And so the adjutant general is one of those. and so. A lot of people knew I was in the guard. They had an idea who I was, but they didn't know really what was going on. And then, so I had I had my work phone and my personal phone with me and my wife and I, and I was drinking a beer with my neighbor and had just having a good time. And I, I knew already what was going to happen, but I can't tell anybody. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there and then three o'clock, and then at 3.01, boom, 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 phones just start going <laughs> crazy. Awesome. And everybody's like, and I'm trying to answer, and I'm texting, and everybody's yelling congratulations. It was, a, it was great. The neighborhood was just, awesome. they were so elated. And it was, you know, my wife was happy, and although she knew what the job was going to entail. She didn't realize how busy it was going to be for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, or I, I was told that no one traveled more than I did as previous tags. But previous tags didn't have the same job I had. By the time I got in the seat, the job had changed twofold from the last guy. Oh, yeah. Because Homeland Security was now broadening its horizon. And, and so I wore three hats. I was Director of Emergency Management. I was a Homeland Security Advisor to the governor, which is something brand new being started by DHS. And and the former tag had it, but he didn't have it quite like I had it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was the Director of the State Department of Defense, this monster organization that you got to run uh, and all the entities, and then, oh, by the way, you're a commander of the Army and the Air National Guard. <laughs> and so...
0: Anything uh, else? Yeah. <laughs> you guys need anything else from yeah. me?
1: And then you have a youth challenge program. you got to make sure that works and, and runs up. And then, oh, by the way, there's this little organization that does tremendous work called the Office of Veterans Services, mm-hmm. run by Colonel uh, Hahn, does an outstanding job with his team, taking care of all the veterans in the state, no matter whether you're active or guard or reserve. And and you've got, a, you've got administrative oversight of that organization, too. And you're just like, ooh. <laughs>
0: is that, is and that, I'm one person. Is that Ron Hahn? Ron Hahn, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I've met him a few times. When I worked at the Capitol, would always right. email him things. Yeah. He was, he's a super nice guy. Yeah, he's super, like, if you ask him something, he's on it. Oh, he's on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's always impressive, yeah. <laughs>
1: and then you take over this job on January 1st. So then, And then 15 days later, I was promoted to general. Um, Although state, I was promoted immediately, but I had to wait for federal recognition. Because I had a COE, it was almost near instantaneous, but it took 15 days for the paperwork to catch up. And then, so the governor uh, pinned me in his office. I didn't want a big ceremony, I just wanted him uh, to do I was it just right about then to and ask there. You. <laughs> yeah, so I had a big ceremony afterwards, mm-hmm. but basically, because he wanted me to be at several meetings and he didn't want me coming as a colonel because he wanted a general and I, and I, and I told him, I have a COE, I'll get promoted very quickly. And and so I didn't want to let him down. So I, I bugged NGB to say, hey, I've got this, I've promoted, it's my job, it's a two-star billet, but I need to make one star first. And they said, we got it. And so they rustled through paperwork, got everything done and everybody worked really hard um, to get to where they needed me to be. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I showed up at these meetings as a one-star general, which is exactly what the governor, uh, he wanted that firepower with yep. him because he's meeting with, you know, the admirals and, and commanders from all the other services.
2: Yep.
1: Um, and then, oh, by the way, what they didn't tell you and what you learn rather quickly is, oh, January is when you submit your budget. Well, actually, you've had to <laughs> submit it before that, but now I have a $180 million budget of wow. which $20 million is state um, and then the federal government, but I need the state entities to help me um, create certain levers and, and um, limits and floor and ceiling expenditures so that I can take in federal money and spend it. So you, you don't just get federal dollars and spend it in your state entity. So this all has to be calculated, coordinated, uh, and approved. And wow. so. Here I am in front of the, you know, I'm meeting the governor for the first time in a, in a now an official capacity as a tag. And I've got a briefing. Here's my budget. Here's what I need. Here's what you're trying to cut for me. You can't do that. I need this. I need this. So I had to go in and argue my budget and I got most of it. I didn't get everything, but you know, that's be it as it may. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you've got to go in front of the state legislature and you've got to argue this in front of them and justify all your expenditures. And, um, it's, did, Fun.
0: Did you go personally? How was that?
1: It was. It was the first time. I played the card of being the new guy on the block, and I didn't know what I didn't know, and so don't hold me accountable. But I didn't work the second time, yeah. right? And so, and they held my feet. They were very cordial the first time, and they understood you could brand new. Let's right. not pick on Joe this first time. But the second time and third time, if you don't have your your coordination and understanding, and and you don't have the budget down to a T and you know, everything you're going to get eaten alive because they're there to, to make sure that you're expending state dollars in a proper fashion. And they're not going to give you any more or any less, right. um, you've got to make sure you justify it and spend it properly. And, and absolutely that's their job and that's their role. And so you've got to come in there with that mindset and say, okay, I, here's every penny I need. Here's why I need it. And here's where it's going. Yeah. Um, and, and oh, by the way, I'm asking for more. And if you give me <laughs> if you give me a a dollar more state, I can get you three more dollars federal. So for every dollar you give me an increase, I can get you more money into the state economy, and spend that money just as viably as I'm spending your state dollars for for valid reasons for things that we need in the state for con- construction projects. Um, you know, you name it for training and exercises, and all the things we need to do as soldiers to make sure, and airmen to make sure we're ready to go when the nation needs us, but mm-hmm. also ready to go when the state needs us. And oh, by the way, these little things called disasters that might happen every few years, like a hurricane or flood or lava, <clears throat> you don't get any extra money for that. That's not an operational you get funded for. You get funded for the day-to-day ops to keep things running, basically. And so if something happens in a disaster now I have to go and ask for more money. Yeah. Because now I got to fund that in state active duty capacity. Cuz the federal government doesn't pay for it. Now they paid for COVID and this is kind of a new thing that the the, the Title 10 we've been arguing with Title 10 Pentagon for years about Title 32 state active duty disaster response when it's a federally recognized disaster and the president says you need help and I'm gonna send you help. So why don't you help pay for that? So what we do now is we go to FEMA, FEMA goes ask the president they get money that way and it just comes back. It's the same pile of money from the federal government but it's, it's different buckets. And so whether it's DOD paying or FEMA paying, uh, it's still coming from the national, you know, it's seems coming like, out of
0: Congress. Seems like yeah. typical government. Yeah. yeah. Go here, there, 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 there. So it's, who's <laughs> going to pay who. And, yeah. and
1: um, but I think now they've kind of opened this Pandora's box of title 32. And we actually did it when we had to go help American Samoa mm-hmm. for the 2009 earthquake uh, tsunami that they had. Um, or maybe it was, I know I was chief of staff at the time, So here we're sending guardsmen to American Samoa because the governor of American Samoa was in Hawaii having dinner with the governor of Hawaii when the island is getting hit. Uh, Now, one, that looks bad, but, you know, you you can't plan disasters. They happen. And now, so he's asking our governor for help. The governor's asking the TAG for help. The Army Reserve is in uh, American Samoa with the Hunter Battalion. But um, there is... you don't just put Title Ten people on disasters. It's not that simple. It's a, there's another process you have to do, and so we sent Guardsmen down to go help, along with, you know, FEMA, along with um, uh, the Defense Support to Civil Authorities uh, team that was out of the 196 out of active duty. Their job is disaster response.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's. <laughs> I I couldn't imagine like. Did that did the disaster happen while that governor from American Samoa was here, or was yes. it like it happened and then he came here?
1: No, he was he was here at the time. Oh, that's so. I mean, it was just an earthquake. It was a fluke. It was an earthquake and a tsunami. Ah, that's such that, a shame. There's no way to plan. For, you you don't know these things are going to happen. Like the Japanese earthquake in 2009, was it that came across and hit Hawaii? We learned all about earthquake. I mean, tsunamis after that. Mm. What I didn't know about tsunamis. And as a colonel I'm as the chief of the joint staff I'm directing all of that support for the uh, units on the ground that the commanders on the ground need need resources so that I'm trying to funnel all these resources
0: get them what they need yeah,
1: yeah.
0: and then so how so you're the you're the adjutant, adjunct, 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 adjunct general. general yeah
1: so it's a two star billet so I made one star and then um, after about six, eight months, I was talking to the four-star up at National Guard Bureau. We we're in a class together. And I said, hey, is there a way for me to make two-star? Yeah. Because I, I got to wait a year. And then you got to put your paperwork in. And then there's another year. And so oh. about two years down the road. So by the end of the first term, I'm making my second star of the governor's four-year, first four-year term. Um, but there is a there's a way for me to get promoted to two-star, even though I'm... Federally recognized under Title Ten rules, so if I leave the country, I'm a one star. But as long as I'm in the continental United States, I'm a two star. So the governor wrote a letter to the four star. The four star wrote a letter back saying, "Yes, promote him to two star."
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Um, he's authorized. He gets all the um, what is it? All the benefits require. I, I didn't get the pay of a two star. I got the pay of a one star, but I I got all the the. the um, Trying to think of the terminology. There's the the rights and privileges of a two star. I see. So I was treated like a two star, uh, and unbe- most people had no clue, except when you when I went to Indonesia, Singapore, Philippines, they're like, I thought you were wearing two star in Hawaii last week. Oh yeah, uh, it's a long story. Yeah. If you got time, <laughs> let's sit down have a beer and I'll tell you about it. But if not, you know, let's just call it what it is. I'm I'm a one star general for now, and so. It, it was always a fun conversation yeah. to have with your, your counterparts from other countries who didn't understand it, um, but so I had this huge ceremony, at the governor at the Washington Place, uh, the, the first lady, uh, of the state um, offered up the, the Washington Place, beautiful location, um, you know, spent a lot of money in catering food and all that stuff and. Had probably four or five hundred people came. Wow! Senior leaders from all over were there, and business leaders, and and people I've known. Like half of my uh, my high school graduation class was there. Wow! You know, and so it was great opportunity. Oh yeah, St. Louis. Yeah. HPU that I I graduated from Hawaii Pacific University. The president came and all that. So I had great relationships with all these people, Um, and I had the police. former police chief, but he was there in, in his entourage. And so it was a great opportunity. And so, you know, the, the governor said a few things and I, then I, I, he pinned me two star, my wife pinned me. Um, my kids were there and uh, great opportunity. My two other two brothers were there. Well, my one brother was sailing somewhere. He was, he wasn't there. So his wife came to represent him and my younger brother was there. Um, and I, I did this really nice kind of, it was a funny speech. Try to write humor into everything when I get to the <laughs> audience's talk. talk. Uh, doesn't always go over well, but that's okay. That's I have a dry right. sense of humor. <laughs> you, and you so I told dry. a lot of stories. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, I had everybody in stitches by the time we were. And, uh, so it was a great opportunity. And, and, that's awesome. But that's how I made two stars. So the governor was happy that I was. And I and, and then I finally, uh, there were some hiccups along the way. Like anything, when you become a general the uh, inspector general person comes to talk to you. And it, not personally, I mean, he talked to all of us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he, he uh, so we have these tag meetings. So we'd all fly up to DC, go meet um, with the four star and, and we'd have a maybe two or three day conference. And then part of that hour of those, one of those days, the inspector general, the three star comes in and he says, okay, here's what's gonna happen. You're a general. All right. You're not any prettier, not any smarter. You're not anything more than you were three weeks ago when you were a colonel. All right. So just get that out of your head now and don't do anything stupid. Just be who you are. Follow the ethics and all the things. And they have to say these things. Right. Because there's always somebody.
0: It's always one. Yeah, There's always one. I guess uh, like we discussed before, if you want to touch on the solar crisis or not. (laughs) so but you don't have to i mean december
1: no january 13 2018 at 801 in the morning there was a was an alert that went out over the the ipod system uh, i forget exactly what it stands for but it's it's a warning system that the fcc and fema put together to allow states and and municipality emergency management organizations <clears throat> use cell phones technology to get information in widespread areas. And so you can geolocate that information. So if like there's a tsunami just in Waikiki, you could put it out so that that just the phones in Waikiki would be hit with, hey, get to high ground, there's a tsunami coming. Oh, that's
0: awesome. So
1: there's there's ways to not manipulate but to coordinate so that you're not surprising everybody.
0: Is that like because of towers? You kind of hit the towers? Yeah, you're hitting the cell
1: towers. So you're geolocating by cell towers. And so that's the way it is today. Uh, it's a lot better than it was back in 2018. See that in 2018 there wasn't a way to practice. You could you could simulate yeah. and not push the button, but pull up the system, or you could and you could verbally say I'm going to now push the button that activate the information to say there's a missile there coming. So. Um, And that was part of the error of this whole scenario. But prior to July 13, uh, 2018, there had been uh, North Korea was involved in um, test firing missiles, capabilities um, getting better and better. They were still archaic at best and Mm -hmm. still learning. Um, Their rocket fuel engines weren't quite the uh, as they didn't. Performed to the high standard they wanted um and so there was a lot of internal issues but they were they were getting there they were getting better they're getting their farther range uh and so and they kept you know saying that we're gonna bomb um Guam or we're gonna bomb hawaii or, <laughs> yeah. or the, the west coast and, and we could hit alaska and so they kept throwing all these things out there uh and they were doing it for whatever political reason they were doing it yeah uh, maybe to get oil and food and some other things for the country, and, uh, but you're an isolated organization, and you treat everybody different than you're treating yourselves, and so you you wonder why you're you're stuck in a box. But yeah. that's their issue, and they need to deal with that. And so, with that, and and then oh, by the way, there's space debris that exits space and comes into the Earth's atmosphere, and then there's ways to track that that space debris because it's not uh, we have radar systems all over that, that can track things. And so to keep it as, as I guess, <clears throat> unclassified as possible, but basically, so in order to protect the Hawaii state citizens,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the discussion between myself, the administrator of uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and the governor, uh, and then with uh, PACOM, USERPAC, and PACAF, and other organizations, um, we basically had a conversation, do we have a duty to to alert the public that if in the event that North Korea did fire this, within, I think, the about 20 minutes, it's going to land. And so we, we should know about the last maybe 10 or 15 minutes where it's going to land. But we're not, it was archaic, I mean, it was better than archaic, but it wasn't. Um, you know within a 2 meter accuracy. Yeah, yeah. So you you're, you you can get a general it's going to hit Oahu or it's going to hit Big Island or something like that or it's going to land between 10 miles north. And so <clears throat> um, because of the short span of time do we have a duty to warn the American or the 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 residents and visitors in Hawaii? And we all came to the agreement that yes, we do. Even though it's 10 12 15 minutes, we should at least let everybody know that an inbound missile is coming. And so that was the start of the genesis. And then, so the team at HIEMA developed, uh, um, um, what do you call, a building blocks of training so that they could, you know, practice and rehearse that if they got the call of the incoming, here's the steps they gotta do mm-hmm. to get the warning out. Whether that's hit the sirens, um, call people on the phone, use the EPA system, and send the alert out. And so they drafted the message that would go out on the alert. Um, They drafted uh, uh, a couple other things and then they had the system, they figured out the system, they practiced with the system. Um, But at the time, only one person had access outside of the state warning point that could alter the system. Um, And my understanding, it wasn't that hard to alter the system to get into it, but anyway, um, it was for this particular this particular day was a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. Everyone's out doing everything else but <laughs> thinking there's an end on this I
0: way. was sleeping.
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was at a family support meeting with all the other leadership of the guard and, and our spouses, and we're all sitting in a room uh, at a table, and we just started the meeting. <laughs> and, uh, and I won't tell what I said when I saw the alert, but <clears throat> needless to say, I ran outside, started making phone calls. Uh, the as soon as I called Haima, which was in the first 30 seconds, I knew it was false. I got to the governor. I let him know uh, within about a minute and a half. And then my phone was going ape. I had Hawaiian Air was calling. Is it real? Is it not? Because oh, we got planes in the air. Yeah. What do we do with all these planes? And so I was calling people that I know at uh, various airlines. I called PACOM. I was trying to let everybody know that, hey, this is not. And then my deputy was getting trying to get a hold of the public affairs people so they could call the news media. Well, our go-to protocol was to call KGMB, or no, um, what was the radio station, um, KSSK. That was our go-to, and then uh-huh. the news stations. And so KSSK only had one phone line. Well, who? <laughs> they're on the phone line talking about the alert to somebody on the phone so the phone's busy so we can't get
2: through <laughs> wow. so
1: we're trying to backdoor, trying to get in through back doors everybody's phones is going ape um it's just um, we didn't have first net back then first net would have thrown everybody off their phones except the emergency management and yeah, so there wouldn't have been sense. a problem as long as you have first net accessibility um, and so we didn't have that yet we have it today but we didn't have it then and then um, so that was the start of this and And, you know, was it an exercise, was it not an exercise? And so the individual that pushed the button, he believes that he didn't hear the first part, that it was an exercise. And so um, to his, uh, you know, and I I believe him, I don't see any reason why not, but he staunchly believes that to him, he didn't hear the first part, so Mm -hmm. it was real. Um, And we may try to make scenarios as real as possible, so we're doing those kinds of things. Um, But everybody else knew it was an exercise, and so, then it was it just it was chaos from there.
2: I, I,
0: bet. I um, would have been I would have been sweating. Yeah. And then the whole thing about the, the Twitter account, which everyone kind well,
1: of Well So I, I don't see the importance. To me, Twitter wasn't the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could I get on Twitter? Well, that's the governor's communications department. That's his yeah. people gotta get out and, and help. And they and everybody was trying. It's just yeah. the systems were overwhelmed. So you talk about I mean it it's unfortunate it happened. And, and and fortunately nobody got killed mm-hmm. um, now there were people doing some weird and odd things and there were people that were not happy at all and they kissed their loved ones goodbye um, thinking they were gonna die and, and uh, you yeah. know I've apologized immensely for all of that and I and if I could change it I would um, and so I, I, I that's an unfortunate incident but since then the FCC FEMA um, I mean the governor and I went to meetings up in Washington D.C. with the Pentagon with the White House staff with you name it we went DHS FEMA we met everybody DOD staff and we discussed what happened we explained it and we provided recommendations and to my to my knowledge they've accepted they've they've they figured out their own uh, recommendations. They developed their own. They took some of ours. And so the whole system has changed today where those kinds of things, I'm not saying it won't happen because it happened in Japan. They did the same thing by accident. Yeah, <laughs> And it yeah. happened in another country. They did the same thing we did. And so it's not impossible. And then HBD did it two years later uh, in their dispatch, they set off the the sirens, not the iPod system, but they oh. set off the sirens. Everybody thought there was something happening. Um, and I was on the phone with the chief or deputy chief almost immediately because I'm sitting at home on a couch hearing the sirens going, uh, buddy, what's going on? And he's yeah. like, oh. Oops. Somebody hit the button. I said get on the TV. That's what that's what we, I did wrong. I should have gone straight to the TV station. But... Um, You know, you got to get the word out.
0: I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize either is that the news media and even the radio stations, everyone was, they were on a line with people talking about, it wasn't the people that they needed to be hearing from. Exactly. And you just could not get through. So when people were saying, oh, it took however many minutes and whatever, it's like, well, it could have taken like two, maybe, but, you know.
1: Well, from what I was told by my people, my public affairs and my other we got the message to the tv station through back channels and through kssk within 12 minutes mm-hmm. now what they did with the information and how they got it out it took a little bit longer and it mm-hmm. started to trickle out before the so everybody counts the 38 minutes from the time they got the initial phone message to the time they got the false alert message mm-hmm. or cancel message that was 38 minutes but prior to well prior to that the TV stations are are, are already reporting false online. Yeah. but see
0: you know, again, it kind of goes back to like the perception. People they're just so worried about this this incident and, and people putting kids in drainage ditches that yeah. <laughs> that they're not even looking at yeah. the the report that nah, it's not it's false news. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and you know, I I think of the media as your friend. They're mm. there. They can help you get information out in a positive light. Ninety nine percent of the time, but when something goes wrong. You know, you, you kind of feel like the, the you're outside the norm and you're not they're not so friendly anymore. Yeah, but they are. They're just they're just doing their job trying to find the facts. And, and they think they think they, the public wants to know and the public does want to know. More. Yeah, of course. So they're trying to help answer the public's questions Yeah. Um, and thinking for them. Um, they could do it a little bit nicer sometimes. But <laughs> be that as it may. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't wish that upon anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but experience wise, it's. I mean I I can't I can't I forget exactly how many conference meetings, media briefings, state legislature, federal meetings the governor and I were at that just, you know, we explained this over and over and over again and uh, really there wasn't much new information yeah. given out but um but we had we you know, we, we did our fair share of explaining.
0: People just wanted to hear it in person, yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: And I, I th- thank the news for for being up there to to at least get the information out, so the public knew that we were doing something about it. We right. weren't just going, oh, my bad biggest mistake see you later go everybody go back to work we didn't do that we explained everything we apologized you know we we made sure we took steps to ensure that we, it'll never happen again I, when never is a bad word mm-hmm. you can never say never because it's human beings we're all human we make mistakes it's just that simple
0: yeah um, well I mean now I mean if they got that system in place where they can block out other other cell phones and just have their own right. runway yeah that's yeah. Well, I mean, they live and learn, I guess, right? Right, and
1: so, and I think even um, either FEMA regionally or nationally um, or FCC can monitor the system, and if something goes out that's wrong, they can help correct it immediately. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that have gone right since mm-hmm. then that they put into place by lessons learned to ensure that the likelihood of it happening again, either one is n- close to zero, or it can be corrected immediately. Nice. So, uh, so Hawaii, uh, not the thing you want to be thankful for, but right. It, would, it 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 turned out it works better for everyone in the end.
0: Are we the only state that uses that has that kind no, of? No, no, no.
1: Everybody has. All the states and territories have.
0: Oh yeah, I, I guess because. The tornadoes and all that
1: too. Yeah, it's an emergency management oh, I piece. Yeah. I
0: was thinking more on just the, the missile, like yeah. <laughs> like as Montana. Well, so you'd alert? be surprised
1: how many. <laughs> so I couldn't go. Uh, there was a conference going on with all the tags, and I had to stay back, and and rightfully so, and, and stay in the islands and help fix this situation. Mm-hmm. Right? Whether that meant briefing you know various people and and all the organizations, then so be it. So I I did a lot of conference calls with the tags up in the, and all of them were like. How did it happen? How do we fix make sure it doesn't happen in my state? Yeah. So I you know, I put together presentations, here's how. Here's what happened. Here's what we did, here's the corrections we made. And so everybody went, Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah, well and that's so the, that's awesome. Yeah. Well at least they reached out. Right. <laughs> they said, oh, I don't want I don't want to make that mistake. <laughs> well and then then you go from, from that position. To retired. Yeah. So when did you retire?
1: So I retired as the adjutant general, the state position, on December 30th, 2019. So exactly almost five years to the day. Wow. And then I retired militarily um, January 3rd. Technically, January 4th, I was retired Hmm. from 2020 from the military after 41 years, six months and five days.
0: Oh, wow. What was that like? Were you like ready or were you still kind of like...
1: I had well, I knew in October that I was uh, was going to retire, mm. uh, and I had asked the governor before, as you know, because after four years, my wife was like, "Okay, you gave it four years." Normally, you know, you do two terms with the governor, you do eight, um, but there's no written rule that you have to. Uh, and my wife was like, "You, I don't see you. You're gone four or five months out of the year. You're yeah. traveling all over. You go into meetings. You come home dead tired." You know, you leave at dark, you come home at dark. Um, I just want my husband back. And so, yeah. and, and as you got to balance your life, right? And so, and, and then you got drill weekends. So you're not, you're home, maybe two weekends out of the year,
2: mm-hmm. you know, out of the month.
1: And then I'm home maybe two mo- weeks out of the month. And so I'm gone all over the place. Cause you got soldiers and airmen everywhere around yep. the world and you have to go visit them. And I have countries that are. You know, like Philippines and Indonesia, we have a relationship with Taiwan. And and I was the only guy in uniform that got to meet the president of Taiwan, got a picture with her. Oh, wow. uh, That just took off on Taiwan like crazy, um, (laughs) gave her, you know. But these are relationships you be as a general. You get to meet all these people. Mm -hmm. um, And it's amazing and it's fun and it's it's enjoyable. um, And these are fantastic people out there. Um, And so we have a state relationship with Indonesia. We have a relationship with the Philippines. Um, We do training requirements with Singapore and their armed forces. Uh, And then we were developing this relationship with Taiwan. Uh, Or further develop because PACOM had had a relationship for a long time. We were just trying to help get it established. Mm -hmm. And we were using emergency management more so. So I could go to Taiwan, not as a two-star general, Mm -hmm. but as the director of emergency management as my state civilian position. Um, and be there, and they'd call me Mr. Logan. Although okay. they didn't, they called me General, but be that as it may. Um, but I went there as a as a civilian, as a state employee. Um, and I wore civilian clothes. And so these are the relationships you build, and so you you, you aspire those, you keep those going, and, and and those are all the fun parts of being the lead. And then I go to, so I'm traveling all over the West, I'm traveling all over the United States. I'm traveling in Europe where my soldiers are and, and airmen are. And so after f- four and a half, five years, it it takes a toll on you. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, my wife and I had a long discussion. I was like, okay, they, the governor's office came and said, hey, would you like to retire at the end of this year? And I said, sure, I will. And so I did. And then uh, took a year off. Well, unfortunately, COVID hit. So the timing was actually perfect. I got out before the chaos started with COVID. Oh man. Um, but I missed it every day. I missed the people that get, just like when I left the police department, I missed all my beat partners, all my friends that I've made. I, you know, granted, I might not have liked certain things about the HPD, mm-hmm. about the pay really, but generally <laughs> HPD was good. Um, but back then we weren't making a lot of money as policemen. And so so I missed all that. And then again, now I'm retiring after 40 years of being in an Army uniform. And, a, and a, the state employee was is five years as that. But but that wasn't the whole. It was about being the tag, being in command and control of large organizations. And then to give all that up to yeah. retire. But fulfilled. I mean, you know, I, I'm the 19th Adjutant General over a 120-year span. That means there weren't a lot of people in yeah. between, right? So only a few people ever get to be the adjutant general. I never thought I was gonna be that. It wasn't my aspiration. I would have liked to have been, you know, I was happy being a colonel, a battalion commander and a colonel. That was that to me was golden. Because mm-hmm. my dad was that. And I said, well, that's all, you know. That that to me was that's life. And then, you know, when you get there you go, well, I think I could be that. I got the potential to do that. And I got the potential. So then then you start thinking about all those other things you can be or could be if the opportunities presented itself. And so one of the things I used to espouse to all my soldiers and airmen, young and old, was always be prepared for promotion. Get every schooling you have to get to, go to it. If you need another school, go to that one. Get the experience, go over there in that unit or this unit or or come up to the headquarters or go on to the joint staff. Get that experience so that when somebody says, hey, would you like to be the adjutant general? For you, it's an easy say, yes, absolutely. I'm well prepared for this. And it's not, well, no, maybe I'm not ready yet because I haven't done a lot of things. Well, whose fault is that? Yeah. Right. So I made sure that I was always prepared. I I, I never pushed anybody out of the way. I always waited my turn, but I always made sure. Hey, is that school open? Is anybody going? If not, I'd like to go. I'll go. So I and so I made myself prepared for. So when the opportunity presented itself, the you know, and I applied for the position, and got the governor appointed me. Mm -hmm. I was ready, and so everyone has to meet that, and 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 so I espouse that to all the young kids, if I was the chief of HPD today, that would be the first thing out of my mouth to every officer at every rank, uh, every sergeant, every supervisor. Hey, I'm here to help you to be the best that you need to be. What can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, by the way, here's your responsibility. You need to make sure that you're, you're skilled. You need to know your job better than everybody else. You need to be prepared for when that promotion happens and you better be ready for it. You better be able to answer all these questions Mm-hmm. and and be prepared for interviews you got to be able to interview
0: yeah and even like with uh um, like even the things with the education i think because you know in the military you can take college courses tuition right. assistance i think hpd might have something similar to that too i've
1: either. talked to other uh, officers that came in a little after me there were certain there were certain programs that allowed mm-hmm. you to go to school and, it, and i think they still have it today where the the city and county, the police department will help pay for people. Now, I did it all myself. I paid mm-hmm. for my own. There was no program when I was there. Or if there was, I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. So I split my days off, Tuesday and Thursday, and those are my days to go to school. So I made all my classes for Tuesday and Thursday. And I buckled down, trying to raise a family, trying to do all the things I needed to do, um, go to work, and still go to school because I had to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was no longer, uh, you can shoulda, coulda, woulda, as I had to. If I wanted to continue in the Army National Guard and be a captain, move all the way up to being a general someday, I needed to finish school. Yeah. So, I, you know, you do what you got to do when you need to.
0: Yeah, I wish, you know, admittedly, when I was in the Army, <clears throat> I didn't have that outlook. Yeah. I was just kind of like, ah, I'm just here. But I do kind of, always looking back, I always wish I would have taken up, it wasn't until right when I was getting out of active duty, I started taking college courses. Right. And when I started taking them on campus from HPU, I'm also a HPU alumni Yeah, right. you know, I was like, man, I should I should have been doing this. You know, it's it's two hours every Saturday, two or three hours every Saturday, could bang out like two classes, right. and you know, advance myself because it all goes towards promotion points and things like that. Yeah, um, so so the, even like with a civilian police department, you, know, you can take everything online nowadays. A criminal justice degree right. or anything. Because if you want to be, a, I think if you want to be like a detective or an investigator, you know, you need a degree to move over into those things. Now, I'm not sure. But.
1: You're Not in the department. You just need a high school diploma to get into the police department.
0: I just mean like as like a Well, detective.
1: to get promoted, it helps you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. But to make sergeant, to be a detective in, in HPD, you've got to make sergeant. So to get promoted to sergeant, and when I was there, was five years minimum time and grade, mm-hmm. unless unless you had a college degree, then you could take the test in three years, but you had to wait for the next cycle of tests to come, <laughs> take the test, and then you, yeah. and then you work on it. So it's, it, it's it's got its rhythm, and then you have to make sure that you fit that rhythm as it goes.
0: Yeah, because they they want you to have the footwork, yeah. Right. Yeah, I used to want to do because I used to train with HPD's SSD. Right. When I was uh, what we call SRT, Special Reaction Team, up on Schofield. So it's oh, okay. our equivalent of a SWAT yeah. team. And we used to train with SSD, and those guys are awesome. They, <laughs> and they are. When I, I had originally wanted to do that HPD, do my time as a regular patrol, and then try out for their SSD, I mean, those guys are super fit. Yes, super, they are. Oh, like, oh yeah. I oh, to love training with them. They would always fly in in a helicopter and, you know, air assault out. Yeah hit their little training building and, uh, quick too I, I loved it um, but yeah it's unfortunately uh, I just I ended up not pursuing I tried I, I got involved in politics right <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of I kind of got lazy I say. <laughs>
1: That's a, it's a big different path so you know in life we always um, and I've, I've told this to my college students I was actually going to write a speech and I, I never finished it but you know it you come to crossroads and so you either take the left road or the right road um, and I don't mean right by his correct road. It's just left and right. Mm-hmm. And so you take a path. And what you need to make sure is you just stay on that path. Now, it may be the wrong path for you in your life, in what you think your life is going. But you, you, you stay on it for a while until another fork comes. And then mm. then you make the decision, am I wrong or am I right? And if I'm wrong, then I'm going to take this path. If I'm, If I'm doing okay and things are going well... But if you start looking back to every crossroad you came to and you go, well, I should have, could have, would have, yeah. well, that's just wasting your time. So you just move forward. Not doesn't mean forget it mm-hmm. because you made decisions there. And those decisions are extremely important later on in life. And you won't know until you hit them. And then you'll realize that's why I hit that road and that's the direction I went. And I went there this way. Because if I went that way, mm-hmm. you know, I and I look back at all the decisions I made and not knowing if I was doing the right thing or not, but it just felt the right thing. I stayed in that path and I went from a private to two star general.
0: Yeah. That's and awesome.
1: if I had taken any of those other paths, I'm not so sure that would have happened. And so they are the right path. You just, it takes time for it to develop mm-hmm. and, and see. And so, like I said, yeah, don't ever forget about those, but don't ponder either. Just think about it and keep moving. Focus on forward. Yeah. Present and forward. Cause that's, where you need to be
0: i like that you should finish that speech <laughs> and write it up and then you can pass it to your well your if students. i ever do
1: another hpu commencement ceremony speech i'll i'll will start with that one
0: yeah that's a good one though i like that well and then i guess we can uh, kind of close it out because i don't want to take up too much of your time we're going on like two hours 23 minutes I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, it was great. I I could talk to you probably for like all day.
1: Yeah, there's probably a lot of things we left out. (laughs) Could have talked about.
0: Is there anything that you wanted to tap on to?
1: No, I just, I, I had a great opportunity, a great career. I mean, I... I joined the military. I I never had a plan to join the military and I didn't want to be active duty because my dad was active duty Mm -hmm. and I didn't want, it's not that I didn't like active duty. I just don't want to travel three months. I mean, three years, every three years, get up and move, get up and move, get up and move. I lived through that. It was very hard to make friends. um, And everywhere you got through, which is, I think to me is why I am the way I am today. Mm -hmm. Throw me in anything. It's okay because I'll figure it out because that's the way I was. Every time I went from this school cross country to that school, Plop, and so military dependent kids that grew up that way, we're kind of all similar in that aspect where we we kind of got used to that, and so we we got that ability to just I don't want to fret with it. Just throw me there, I'm good, I'm going, I, I'm gonna execute, because we had to. We had, yeah. that's what we and we we were kids. We had not say we had don't say. I mean, I, at six years old, tell my parents I'm not going. I, that's not gonna
2: happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, you maybe
1: at seventeen in high school <laughs> might have had a little more impact. But not at you know at my age, and so I got here when I was 12. So, I I have no uh, you know, like I said, no aspiration to be in the military. It wasn't. It was by fluke that a friend came by and asked me to take him to the recruiter's office because he had already joined, <laughs> and that was the start of my career. And I, I I thank him. The last time I saw him, he's here in Waikiki somewhere, um, and we ran into each other by accident and. I told him, thank you. And he's like, why? I said, if it wasn't for you, I would have never joined the military, mm-hmm. or I might have joined it much later in life, um, and I wouldn't have been where I am today, and so I want to thank you for that, because you're you're the reason that I went to that in the first place. And that was this Hawaiian-Chinese, one of the sons mm-hmm. of this family that hanai us when we first moved here, and opened their doors of their house to, to us any time we wanted to come by, no matter what time of day, night, didn't matter if you needed to come by and you know, you need a place to sleep. Our house is open to you, and so just what a a wonderful I, the Hawaiian people here are just they they, they give their hearts oh, out yeah. to everyone here. They're so warm and 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 caring for people, and so uh, to me, you know, living here for almost it's forty nine years now, it'll be fifty uh, next March, and so but I I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I don't I don't mind visiting, but I wouldn't want to live anywhere else.
0: I I and I can echo those sentiments like. I, uh, I, I know people who live in Hawaii that really don't have, like, local friends. They kind of just right. stay Waikiki, Honolulu. But for me, Hawaii, you know, I've had Hawaiians bring me in, in the Hanai yeah. sense, like you said. And uh, it's just those, those people and that feeling you get and, and the welcomeness and, and, the, and the true friendship. Exactly. Is what really yeah. makes me want to stay. Because, yeah. you, I, I don't know, I, I've been other places and you just can't find that same sentiment, yeah? yeah. So...
1: A lot of people out there claim to be your friends, but when the when the difficult parts are happening in your life and mm-hmm. they're not around, is that truly your friend?
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Awesome. Well, I really appreciated your your time. Thank you and for then, the opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate it. I would like to do it again um whenever whenever you're ready, maybe in a maybe couple we months. We could talk about a lot of
1: police stuff next time and Yeah. Leave the military for Yeah?
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate it. Uh and uh Yeah, we'll have to get together and do it again. Thank you, James, for the opportunity. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day.
1: You too.